Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Let's do a little roll call, like uh, like the teacher used to do at my school at the beginning of class. Go through everybody's name. Joe McGee, here. Steven, here. Sean, here. I don't know who Joe McGee is, but anyway... Uh, I want to do a little roll call when it comes to sports right off the top of the show today. This 3 o'clock hour today is going to move lightning quick. We're going to get a visit from Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach. Always quotable, always interesting. We're going to get a visit from Jack Coletto, Swiss Army Knife at Oregon State. How are they going to rebound this week? They've got Utah. Kyle Whittingham at 4 o'clock, Utah football coach, will be joining us. A lot in and around there. It'll move fast, but think about this. Major League Baseball, it's on right now. The NFL, we have started the season, and we're several weeks into the season. Teams starting to find their rhythm. Fans and fantasy league teams starting to find some groove. College football, we are in week five of college football already. Approaching, like, we're just a couple games, a couple Saturdays away from the midpoint season of the regular season of college football. NBA, got a lot of media days going on nationally. Blazers had their media day yesterday. Bunch of Blazers talking about the We Gunners. You know, Damian Lillard excited about the young players. Anthony Simons excited to about the young players. Um, you know, he'll be starting alongside Damian Lillard, all that talk. What I'm saying is we're in a sweet spot when it comes to sports in general, the fall calendar, uh, everything back on rhythm. Remember, it wasn't that long ago. Everything was out of rhythm, even though they were playing games. So I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful that we are entering this sweet spot with some momentum in the Pac-12 conference. The top six teams of the conference all seem to matter, all seem relevant. I was talking about this today with a colleague who works in Seattle, and I was, you know, I was asked, like, what do you think is going to happen? which two teams from the Pac-12 conference are going to get to Las Vegas. And for people who may not be aware, the Pac-12 has gotten rid of the North and South divisions. We still sometimes refer to them as North and South. And in fact, for scheduling purposes, they're still playing each other kind of in a North-South pattern. All the North division teams are playing the other North division teams sort of in a pod, uh, along with some of the other South division teams and likewise in the South. But, uh, the best two teams, the teams with the best two records, are supposed to advance to Las Vegas in early December to play each other. So I was asked today, who do I think could get there? Who are the front runners? Well, we know Utah was the team picked as the front runner when it came to the preseason media poll. And Utah, sitting at 3-1 and overall and 1-0 in Pac-12 play, certainly in this thing. I also think people know that USC is in this thing. They are undefeated. They are 2-0 in conference play, 4-0 overall. USC found a way to win at Oregon State. Um, I still think they're a bit of a pretender, and I think they're going to lose games here or there. 
But uh, USC certainly in that, I think, in the eyes of the public. Oregon, likewise, sitting at 3-1, and 1-0 in conference play. And again, the conference record matters more when it comes to getting to Vegas than the overall record. So the 1-0 teams in conference play and uh, the 2-0 team, USC, certainly in the driver's seat. I do think there are a couple of 0-1 teams that could get there. But I think right now I can eliminate about four teams from contention in Vegas, which is fewer than in most years at this point of the season, which I think suggests that the Pac-12 conference is going to be wide open, going to be more fun, certainly better at the top of the conference. I think when you look at USC, Utah, Oregon, Washington, uh, probably maybe even Washington State, Oregon State, you know, uh, you think about the teams that could contend. But to answer the question simply, I think there are, right now, I think there are six teams that can make a case. Probably five with a straight face, but six teams that I'm not, I'm going to draw the circle of six with, that you can say have an opportunity to get to Las Vegas. And I think the two teams that play for the conference championship will obviously be in these top six teams. I'm going to, I'm going to list them and then we're going to talk about them. Utah, USC, Oregon, Washington. Those four, I think, uh, it's likely that that uh, two of those four are going to play for the title, but those four are in contention. Um, now, I'm going to put two other schools in uh, and possibly a third other school in when we talk about, you know, USC, Utah, Oregon, Washington. There's four. I think Oregon State and Washington State are still in this thing. That takes us to six. I also think UCLA is in the conversation, but I think on Friday night we might be able to eliminate the Bruins. Who do you think gets to Vegas? Who plays for all the marbles? I think Utah is going to get there, and I think it's either going to be Oregon or Washington. That's my pick. Steven, Sean, who do you like to get to Vegas first week of December and play for the conference championship? Yeah, I agree with the four uh, four teams you named off there. I think right now I'm going to lean towards Utah as one of them for sure. Um, and the second one, I'm still going to go with the Ducks. I had the Ducks at the start of the year. I still think Oregon... Um, even though they struggled a little bit defensively against Washington State, they toughed it out, got the win. I think those are my two picks uh, to go to Vegas right now. I'm going to go with USC and Washington. I just went through all the schedules, and these aren't necessarily the two teams that I think are the best teams. However, they have the easiest schedules in front of them. Uh, you know, Washington, we've talked about their schedule. USC, pretty easy schedule as well. And I was going through Utah's schedule. While I think they're probably the best team right now, their next four weeks, Oregon State, UCLA, USC at Washington State. So I think they have a harder road. I think Oregon ends with a really hard road. And I think yeah. the two teams with the best records are going to be Washington and USC. I think on Friday we're going to find out a lot about Washington and UCLA because I, you know, everybody's dismissing UCLA, and I get why they haven't looked impressive, even though, you know, they are undefeated. They might be the worst undefeated team in America, you know, by public perception. But um, I think on Friday night we're going to learn a lot about Washington having to go on the road and play at UCLA. We're going to find something out about UCLA. Are they a real contender or not? I'm not sold on USC, and the USC fans are are mad at me. They're tweeting at me. They're calling me a hater, but. I just didn't love what I saw in the opening part of this season. Like, you know, Rice, Stanford, Fresno State. Then the game at Oregon State, they didn't look great. And I kind of wonder if Oregon State figured something out about USC that that maybe a couple of Pac-12 teams will exploit. To USC's credit, they, uh, or, you know, if you want to put it in their positive column, 
they you know they have a pretty soft schedule. They don't play Washington. They don't have to play Oregon. Uh, they play at Utah, which is going to be a ridiculous game on October fifteenth. I think it's going. They're walking into a trap there at Rice Eccles Stadium. Uh, but I also think the week before, you know, not this week, but next week, October eighth, Washington State goes to USC. We saw Washington State against Oregon. I think there's a chance there that USC might be peeking ahead to Utah, and Washington State is going to show up in that game. And Lincoln Riley said it yesterday. He said, look, teams circle us on the calendar. Everybody plays USC like it's their biggest game. I think the Washington State at USC game, the USC at Utah game, uh, certainly later in the year the SC-UCLA game are potential losses for, for USC. I'm, I'm not totally sold on their physicality. Hey, John, like, oh, yeah. re- sorry, real quick, call me crazy. If Cal can beat Washington State this week, do you think they have a chance? Because I'm looking at their schedule. They're four-point dogs on the road in Pullman this week, but then they play Colorado, and then later on in the year, besides the three ranked teams, they play Oregon State at home against Stanford, at home against UCLA. That schedule's not tough, and then in the middle, it's at home against Washington, at home against Cal- or Oregon, and then on the road at USC. If they beat Cal- if they beat Washington State this week, they're going to beat Colorado next week. They'll be three and zero in the conference. Is there yeah. any chance that they could sneak I mean, their way in there? Y- you got to include them, but we have watched them, Stephen. You and I watched them against Notre Dame. They looked inept, like you know. And it, it just I have a hard time seeing that kind of team be able to get through conference play without multiple losses. I but, love their coach. I think Justin Wilcox is a great coach, but gosh, so you're not you're not buying the forty nine point outburst against Arizona. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm pumping the brakes okay. on the cow on the Cal bandwagon. Right. I was on the bandwagon a week ago. Now I'm off the bandwagon. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about Cal. I just I don't I haven't taken them seriously. I don't include them, but I think it's I I think there's a real good chance. Like I feel like in two weeks we're gonna know a, a whole bunch more about Utah USC, of course. Uh, you know, I'm going to the October 15th game, the SC game at Utah. I'm going to go cover that game. I want to be there. I want to see it in person. I want to see Utah with my own eyes this week as they, they uh, you know, they host uh, Oregon State. So I, I want to see what Utah looks like. And I think we're going to, you know, really interesting to see Utah play Oregon State the week after USC did. Like, let's just see how they match up. You know, and it isn't apples to apples all the time when we look at these matchups, but it's certainly fun. Bruce Barnum is coming up, the Portland State football coach. Jack Coletto, Oregon State's linebacker, right on his heels. And Kyle Whittingham at 4 o'clock. Be here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, joining us now. How you doing, man? What's going on? Hey, John, been better, been worse, you know. Been better, been worse. Uh, we lost a tough one in Missoula, you know. Uh, one thing I pride myself in as a coach and my team is we compete, and I think we got swamped a little bit over there. But, you know, it was a, it was a hell of a September. The Vikes are 0-3, and, you know, you walk by some people around here, and my somebody joked about it in the staff and said, oh, you know, uh, I feel like they look at us like we're 0-3. I said, sheesh, they should be looking at you like you're, Phil Knight's, you know, nephew, your their biggest donor. I said, let's be realistic. And we played two money games. We played number two in the country. Oh, actually, we played number two in the country, number fifteen in the country. And San Jose State is, you know, at the top of their conference. So let's go. You uh, let's go. You guys, the second quarter, this game got away from you. It, uh, what happened? What happened in that second quarter? Five twenty-four left. Second quarter. Um, I, I saw the Auburn thing. 
you know, the thing where you, they kicked it and beat Alabama. Uh, I saw that happen. I saw a very um, fortuitous, I don't know if that's a word, or if it yeah, fits. Yeah, you're good, yeah. I saw a, a team that I've joked with the coach. I know they do it, you know, where they sit and they get you to jump off sides because the noise. The refs can't. I talked to Kelly and the ref about it. And they can't do anything about it. They don't hear it. So we don't have this. We have a, you know, backup. So they back us up is my point. Um, for a field goal, they backed us up on the goal line, but we still scored on that one. But uh, the wheels fell off. We went 17-14. Uh, they popped a run on us and scored. We came back out. Uh, quarterback was having issues, but we drove it down for a field goal, and we kicked that field goal, John. It was a long one, and uh, uh, they returned it like the guy did at Auburn. Remember when mm -hmm. Auburn beat yeah. Alabama? Yeah. You know, uh, and I'm just thinking. You know, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I told the team, the offense. I said we're going to score here. Uh, everything's fitting right there. We're going to score, and we get the ball because we deferred, and we're going to come back and score in the second half. And all of a sudden, swoosh, um, they score points, and I'm like, what is going on? Uh, you know, and then we go in, and my quarterback had an issue. I'm walking down the tunnel. They tell me he's not playing or he's out. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, coming back on the field, not going in. So they got muddy, and we couldn't hold on. Uh, that's what happened. Very good football team, excellent crowd, and uh, I got a little. You know, I talked to my team about it, John. Just uh, they kept punching back, we kept punching, and you know, and then we pulled a no moss. That's how I felt um, in, in the battle, and we can't have that. So you guys get Northern Arizona at home. How do you psychologically get? your team back to focusing and competing and forgetting what happened a week ago? Uh, that's magic. Honestly, what happened, you know, I'll go back to Washington and this one, you know. Our September was a bitch, and uh, they have to realize that. Don't look at your record, you know. Uh, don't label yourself 0-3. Uh, you can't. You have to have a short memory. We have eight games left. We can still earn more. And now you're facing, you know, a team that isn't ranked. It's in your conference, you know, and let's go. Uh, so uh, my leadership, I loved how practice was today. But, you know, I, I think about those games here at this job more than probably than any, John. You know, that Sunday meeting I think was critical uh, with my football team. But uh, they saw Barnum they probably haven't seen, you know. Uh, but uh, we're going to be a tough-ass organization. I'm not, we're not going to settle for some things, uh, win or lose. So, Your best football against San Jose State, you think? Um, yes, it was, uh, if you look at it. Uh, because Washington, you know, got after it. I think I thought we started this game outstanding. And San Jose State in the first quarter, first quarter and whatever a half two-thirds of this game i thought we played well we kept coming back at him we got the opening kickoff we scored on it you know first team to score on them in the first quarter all year everything you know we're going well kids are playing hard but little little adversity and uh, i didn't like my sideline so yeah uh, it, it's hard isn't it as a coach because you're so focused on what's going on in the field but you're down there and you're amid that sideline. I was watching. I, I always, from the press box, watch body language on the sideline. And 
How important is that to have kind of guys engaged, focused, the energy on the sideline? Oh, it is, and it's momentum. You know, that's how I label it. And we knew it was going to be – when they get the momentum in that spot, you know, uh, you better refocus. Get together, look at the grass, knock out the noise, and let's roll. Uh, but we addressed it, and we got caught up in it, and, and they kept going. So uh, they are a tough team to beat at home. Um, you know, they have that 12th man. They have Washington Grizz Stadium. Um, the positive is that we don't play anybody else like that until the playoffs. You know, from here on out, we have three at home, uh, first game at home, you know, finally. Uh, so I know what it's going to be, and I know how it can form. It's going to change a little bit, you know, what you see on the field as far as communication. And, you know, we need to get the rhythm going on offense. I think we know how to do that at home. And it's hard, it was hard to do it at that place. Uh, we chose to huddle, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to calm my guy down. I have a new quarterback, and you know. Uh, but uh, hindsight, twenty twenty, put him probably would have just run him normal and say, "Let's go. This is how we do it, kid." You know? Bruce Barnum is with us, Portland State football coach. You get Northern Arizona. Uh, I'm looking at them. They played some payday games. Looks like they played Arizona State. They played North Dakota. They played Sam Houston. They are, uh, uh, and they played uh, Idaho. And they are one and three. Correct. What do you what do you see on film? Um, I know their head coach. I worked with him many moons ago. He used to be a cover four guy. Uh, he's rolling in more cover three uh, and different types of cover three. You know, uh, cloud boundary, cloud field, uh, fires on. You know, but he's more more three safeties high, uh, which was new to see from him. They have a number seven who runs their defense. I think. Um, they have, you know, great players. They don't move and blitz as much. They're 16% blitz. You know, that could change. Game always changes when you come into a new game, you know. But right now, the first three games, they haven't pressured as much. I think he wants everything in front of him. So, you cover three curtails to that and roll down and, you know, be patient and consistent on offense. You should be able to move the football. Which, um, offensively, I haven't seen a lot of them just because I'm knee-deep in their defense right now. We're still doing game plan, but um, uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Give me an idea when you know you come out of a game like you know the Washington game, you get beat 52-6. to you, you go to Montana, you get beat 53-16. Do you spend a lot of time watching film of those games, or is there some value in maybe flushing the film and turning your focus to the opponent? You know, that's an interesting question. I used to do that when I was younger. The only time I flush a film is if, like if it's a defense, uh, offensively. If it's a defense, we'll never see again. You know, or you hear the guys on defense if, if they run uh, option. If they're an option team, then you kind of just shelf that film till next year. Uh, you let, let, let them see the, you know, the big plays, maybe the highlights. But your next opponent is defense or, you know, their offense, if it's just totally different, that's when um, I think a uh, film gets shelved. Uh, there was good in that film. We did some good things. So, no, I, uh, everyone we learned from showed them where the wheels came off and why and uh, correct it. Can't let it happen again. So, no, we watched the film. Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach with us. Uh, what do you do now? Uh, Health-wise, quarterback, other positions, what are you doing? 
Uh, again, we're trying to get healthy again. Um, I lost, uh, you know, Anthony Adams. Um, mm -hmm. He's he missed his game because of the Washington game right before the right before the half. So we're down him. Uh, we got a couple banged up in this game that uh, I think I'll have find out who I'm going to have back. You know, um, uh, some things happened to some key guys, but I think they're going to be back. But so first thing you do is go through depth. We go through depth. Sunday's the first thing you do. Where are we at? What are we looking at? Just you don't want to make a game plan with guys that odds are they're going to have to miss a week. You know, so. Um, that's a start, and then you start watching the film. What are they doing? What have people done against them? You know, maybe call some friends, see what they that they, they already played. You know, see uh, what experience. What did you see? What didn't you see? Because they've already played them. They know them for real, not on, you know, not Memrex video. Kill the radio star deal. It's they were there live. So get that and just gather the information and put it on the field. You know. Uh, teach to your kids. You guys are home. It's a 2 p.m. kickoff on Saturday for people who want to go to Hillsboro, see Portland State play Northern Arizona. Bruce Barnum is with us. Um, uh, I know you're not giving away beer this week. Maybe we'll do that at some point of the season. Maybe we could get it sponsored instead of it coming out of your pocket. I think that that would be good. But I like to see you guys. I mean, I think this is a game that's gettable this week. Like, it, it, you know, you, you, you start a win. You can only have a win streak by winning – the first one, right? Like it has to start with northern Northern Arizona. Right, it's a great time to do it. You know, it's a uh, we can win every Saturday from here on out. I told him uh, we have three at home. Uh, let's be three and three and just watch, or start one. You know, one and zero. Oh, but uh, yeah. come out of this three and three and see how the sky's blue now. You know, yep. Uh, winning solves a lot. So that's where we're at. I'm confident we can do it. That we're going to do it. So ready to go. Bruce Barnum, uh, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you. Good luck this week. Northern Arizona at home, Hillsboro Stadium, 2 o'clock Saturday for people who want to get tickets and see the Vikes play. Thanks, Bruce Barnum, for joining us. No, I appreciate it. No, you have a busy slate. Thanks for having the Vikes on, John. I'll talk to you. Always. There he is, Bruce Barnum. Uh, Portland State's got to get right. I, You know, nobody expected them to win the first couple of few games of the season. Uh, they, you know, they were playing payday games, they're playing San Jose State, they're playing Washington. I don't think they were happy with their performance in week three. But I do think it's one of those things where you look at the teams that are playing those kinds of schedules where they have to play those payday games. I do think you walk into a situation where you're beat up. Um, you've got no momentum because you don't have any wins. Uh, you collected some money at Washington and San Jose State. You know, they made almost a million dollars by playing those games. That helps the athletic department. But you're starting from a standstill. And, oh, by the way, you're going to Montana. It was just a very flat performance by Portland State. But I don't think it surprises people. The next three, they are home. Home against Northern Arizona. Home against Lincoln. Home against Weber State. Real good opportunity to see the Vikings if you want a good family experience. Saturday, 2 o'clock. Hillsboro Stadium, Northern Arizona visiting Portland State. Up next, Jack Coletto, linebacker and a Swiss Army knife at Oregon State. Coletto's going to join us. We'll talk a little bit about the USC game and Oregon State pivoting to Utah. They'll go to Rice-Eccles Stadium. Kyle Whittingham, the Utes coach, will join us at 4 o'clock. Be here. 
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Oregon State heads to Utah Saturday. They're going to play in the daylight against the Utes. Jack Coletto, linebacker, running back, uh, pasta guy joining us now. Jack Coletto, how you doing, man? I'm great. How about yourself? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, I was at your game. Felt like uh, felt like you guys were the better team. I still think you were the better team, even though you didn't get the W. How did you leave that that Saturday night feeling? Oh, to sum it up, not very well. But I mean, it is a good sign to show that we can compete with good teams. We just have to close and finish out. Yeah, yeah. I think psychologically. Most people don't understand kind of the week to week, you know, sort of reset that you guys that you guys deal with. Give us an idea of, you know, kind of how quickly you have to pivot, win or loss, how quickly you have to pivot to what comes next. Well, I mean, especially when you get in the the schedule of the season, the weeks go by insanely fast. Like honestly, I can remember it being the third quarter right now for SC and right now it's Tuesday, what, 3.34? Yeah. So, I mean, you don't really get a lot of time to sit there and dwell. And granted, you shouldn't dwell on any loss or any win by that matter for too long. And right now, I mean, our team's moved on. We're on to Utah, so. Yeah, give us an idea. What, what do you see when you look at Utah on film? Uh, it's the same team they've always been from when I've watched film. I mean, Big, physical, like to run the ball, sound defense. They're not super exotic, so they kind of do what they do. So it'll be a good game. They're a good team. Do you like those kinds of games maybe more than when you see a team that likes to put it up 45 times? You know, Do you like a physical game as a, as a linebacker? Um, I honestly tend to not really have a preference. It doesn't really matter to me. I mean, I, I don't know, because I just feel like I get so wrapped up in to how to figure out their offense and what they do and figuring out tendencies that, like, I don't know, there's just really no, there tends to be no preference for me. Especially since our offense, and we were, our offense tends to be more physical and stuff like that. So, I mean, having the change of pace playing in the air or, and, or having the familiarity of playing a similar offense to ours, it's, I don't really have a preference. Jack Coletto with us, Oregon State linebacker. The the way you guys played against USC, the 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 defense in particular, help us help us understand. You know, did you feel going into the game that it was going to be that kind of game, or, or or as the game's unfolding, you know, did you know did USC do anything that surprised you, or were they pretty much doing stuff and running stuff that you that you saw on film? They did what we they did uh, what we saw on film. They didn't really tend to waver or change too much. It's kind of similar to our philosophy. We kind of tend to do what we want to do, and then obviously have a few wrinkles and change ups here and there. But I mean, everything they did offensively was stuff we've we've seen them do on film. So we were prepared for it. Jack, you know, I think that crowd was electric. I don't know what it was like to play out there, but being in that stadium. 
It was shockingly loud for what was about a half a stadium. Did Give me an idea of the sound in there compared to maybe the Boise State game. Was it all the same, or did it feel a little bit more electric on Saturday with USC there? Oh, man, it was juice. Beaver Nation was going nuts, man. I loved every second of it. But, yeah, it was definitely louder than the Boise State game. When you guys, uh, you know, as you are competing in that game, uh, and, you know, late in that late in that game, you had them down on the one-yard line. I felt like that was a big turning point for the game. It, when you look back on film, do you kick yourself looking at plays? Do you tip your cap to them? Do you do a little bit of both? Uh, it's so funny, because every time you watch a game, especially a game that's that close, there's so much hypothetical situations you could play in your head like what if this happened what if that happened what if we did this what if we did that and i mean to be honest it's like well it's kind of fun to speculate and think about certain situations like that i tend to find it not very useful yeah just because not really focusing on what's actually happened and the reality of things and i tend to try to focus on the reality of things yeah because i think you can you can analysis you know paralysis by analysis it happens pretty quickly if you just sit there and pour over the film and go, okay, you know, if this guy gets a hand on the receiver and jams the receiver, then something else happens. But you don't know what the counter move is. And, and, I, and I think, look, I, I felt like you guys were the better team, but I also sort of say give some credit to USC. They kept playing. Absolutely. I like that saying, paralysis by analysis. That's a good one. There you go. Don't overdo it, okay. you know. Are you a film guy? Like uh, you, you talked about tendencies, but are you a big let's study a bunch of film? Yeah, I tend to kind of get, I tend to kind of get lost in the film and lose track of time. But I enjoy it. I kind of just, I mean, just for me in terms of the preparation, it just makes playing the game so much easier and so much more enjoyable, especially when you know what you're doing. Like if you go out there and you don't know what you're doing, it's a pretty miserable time. Yeah, Jack Coletto with us, Oregon State linebacker. The Utah game is going to be in the daylight, and I know some people, you know, in high school you like to play the game under the lights or whatever, but something about a college football Saturday played in broad daylight. Do you prefer a night game, a day game? Does it matter to Jack Coletto? It does not matter to Jack Coletto. Gotta, my dad always tells me you got to be able to play anywhere, anytime. Like that. Like like what we're seeing too on the field, uh, you guys psychologically, I do think this is a uh, going to be an important game for you guys. You you, you know playing back to back two of the best teams in the conference, but you got Utah a year ago. How much do you think back to what happened last year? What went well last year? You know, can you can you I guess glean anything from last year's win over Utah? Special teams, the block punt. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that basically what changed the whole course of the game. So, and I mean, who knows what it's going to be this Saturday, but you never know when the play that's going to define the game is going to happen. So you always have to be ready for it. You guys uh, have stu- school back in session. What has it been like to have students on campus? They all probably know Jackhammer. What are they saying to you as they ride by you on a bicycle or see you? <laughs> <laughs> I usually tend to disappear into my, my little cave. So, I mean, there's you, not too much of that. What do you mean I your little cave? Give me What's your little cave? Like you just kind of get into your own world? 
Well, just my little my man my man cave where I stay, where I sleep, my apartment. <laughs> so you just go in there, you come you come out to practice, and then you come out on game days. Don't don't bother Jack. He's in the cave. <laughs> exactly. He's hibernating. Uh, hey, hey, you know what I kept getting? Uh, Ashley Adamson, who is a host on the Pac-12 Networks, tried to go on the Jackhammer website, and she wanted to buy a hat. She says uh, they're on back order right now. We got to get your your you know the supply chain going, man. For people who want to visit the website, jackhammercoletto.com if you want to check out the apparel. Uh, for for uh, you know Jack uh, Coletto, he is also donating 25% of the proceeds to the Wounded Warrior Project. But Ashley Adamson wanted a jackhammer hat, man. Uh, we got to get a supply, su- get the supply chain going. Well, to comment on that, we actually we did get the ball rolling yesterday, so everything should be back and good to go. So okay, all right, definitely happy to. I'll tell, yeah, I'll tell Ashley to get on there and order it now. Because at the game, she was like, "I wanted to wear the hat. I wanted to wear it at the game." And and uh, you know, I I think it's good for business for for the Jackhammer collection to have that stuff out there. Jack Coletto is with us. Look, I won't keep you long here, but how are you feeling? Like, take the temperature, the mood in the locker room. I, you know, you guys have dealt with disappointment before. Does this feel like um, you guys pivoted very quickly? What does it feel like for you guys? I think I think we've moved on and we're ready for Utah and you know we've bounced back and kind of licked our wounds a little bit so ultimately we'll have to see Saturday but I believe we've moved on and we're ready to go for this Saturday. I want to see you play USC again. So get to Vegas. I want to see that rematch. You don't need to tell me twice. There you go. Jack Coletto, you get back to the cave now. We'll I'll see you I'll see you Saturday in Salt Lake City. For people who want to uh, check out the collection, it's jackhammercoletto.com if you want to check out his website. And, uh, of course, it helps the Wounded Warrior Project if you uh, make a purchase on the website. Jack Coletto, thank you for joining us. Appreciate you, man. Great. Thanks for having me. There he is, Jack Coletto. I'm going to talk about this for a second, guys. Uh, The psychology involved here is really interesting to me. They lose a very disappointing game. Game they probably should have won if they had just finished better, played a little better. Defense gave up uh, a big drive for USC, took it 99 yards on a big, important drive late in the game. And, of course, the offense can play better. And Chance Nolan, four interceptions, very difficult to win with a quarterback throwing four interceptions. Need better play from Chance Nolan. But I'm very interested to see what Oregon State looks like, what their energy is like, what their focus is like when they play at Utah on Saturday. What about you guys? Yeah, I mean, they don't have any time to, uh, you know, think about that loss and dwell on it, right? You're playing now at Utah, um, probably the best team in the conference, second best team in the conference, whatever it is. You don't have time to dwell on this loss to USC, and you could just tell the pain that they have in in that locker room just based off what Coletto was saying there. You know, can you use that to go out and motivate yourself to beat Utah, who is a really good team, but you beat them last season. So it is a winnable game, and you know you just got to keep moving forward. You're close, right? You talk about getting to Vegas. The Beavs are close. They just got to get over that hump. Didn't happen against USC. Can they get it against Utah? But, yeah, I'm excited to see what they look like on Saturday. Yeah, I think this is a huge one uh, coming up this Saturday. I think we've talked so much about how good this Pac-12 conference is, and, you know, now that – 
teams like Oregon State and Washington State, two contenders, have that one loss, there's there's not a whole lot of margin for error. So really important one for the Beavs. And if they're able to get this one against Utah, then they have Stanford, which more and more as they lose EJ Smith, David Shaw announced today, they just they seem like kind of the one of the easier opponents in the Pac-12. So uh, really big game, and you know early on early prediction, I, I expect Oregon State to play them close even on the road. Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be a really good test for Oregon State. Uh, beating Utah and Utah is difficult. Uh, I still think Utah is the best team in the conference, but I think Oregon State can be in this game. I think it's you know exactly the kind of game that Kyle Whittingham loves to play. We'll talk to Kyle Whittingham in about 15 minutes. I want you here for it. The Utah coach will be joining us. But uh, good stuff from Jack Coletto. Coming up, our big splash, the one thing you need to know today. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Stanford uh, running back E.J. Smith out for the season. Lake Oswego's Casey Filkins will get the start against the Ducks on Saturday. A lot going on with Stanford. I really thought, I think, Stephen, you and I were on the same page with Stanford. I thought Stanford would have a big bounce back year, and now I'm looking at them and going, um, you know, this may be the worst that I have seen Stanford in a two-year stretch in at least – before the Jim Harbaugh era. Yeah, I agree. I was with you. I you know, I kind of bought what Davis Shaw was selling at Pac twelve media day. Um and they you know, to go by just this the the point spread market, you know, they're 0 and three against the spread, so they're even worse than what the market was rating them, and that was four and a half wins going into the season. So yeah, I was fully wrong about that one. And I don't know how it's going to get better, right? You talk about how bad this team is really compared to the rest of the conference. This may be towards the bottom of the conference team and I don't know how they're going to write the ship now with the EJ Smith injury. Uh, Tanner McKee just doesn't look comfortable back there. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's a bad situation right now over in Stanford. I, they, they play at Oregon, 8 o'clock kickoff on Saturday night. Uh, good luck uh, with that late kickoff. But then they host Oregon State uh, the following weekend, and then they go to Notre Dame. Uh, I think, you know, I think they can play with Notre Dame, you know, unless Notre Dame takes a big step forward. Then they get Arizona State. They're they're in that game, but they finish at UCLA, hosting Washington State at Utah. I'm looking for a win oh. at Cal. You know BYU at home. Uh, this could be a tough one for David Shaw. Another tough one. Over their last ten games, they are one and nine, and that one yeah. win is against Colgate. Uh, my question for you, John, is is David Shaw going to be the guy? You know, does he have good job security? You think? I think he's got job security. I don't, I don't think Stanford's firing David Shaw. Uh, I think he's got too much success, too much institutional um, uh, momentum, at least in that way. But, you know, the weird one for me is if you go back even farther, like, you know, they they weren't good at the end of last year, but they beat Oregon. And they beat Oregon in that overtime game. And so unless Stanford fixes something or finds some solution – I just I'm looking at like can they get to four? Can they get to three? Like I I think they can beat Arizona State. I think they can they might beat Notre Dame. Who knows? They uh, they certainly the big game Stanford Cal on November nineteenth is a game. But I don't think they can beat BYU. I don't think they can win at Utah. I don't think they can beat Washington State. 
Uh, I got a real question about whether or not they can beat UCLA. Um, I don't think Oregon or Oregon State are going to lose to Stanford this year. Could you just elaborate a little bit as to why you think he has good job security? Because, uh, again, what's what's the excuse? You know, one in nine in the last ten games, this is a program that had so much success not that long ago and was a national power, and it seems like they're they're in a tailspin. What What's the rationality behind, you know, his job security? Well, you look at Stanford's his, history in football. You know, this is not a program that was historically at the top of the Pac-12 conference. In your lifetime, yes. But, and why they were successful in your lifetime was David Shaw took them to three Rose Bowls. But look at Stanford football's history with bowl games, and it becomes pretty evident, like, why, you know, why it is that David Shaw is going to get a wide berth here. Like, you know, let's go, let's look at their Rose Bowl appearances, okay? They went to the Rose Bowl in 1902. 1925, uh, they went to the Rose Bowl a couple times in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s and 50s. Uh, but then let's look at, uh, you know, just the drought that happened from about 1986 on. Um, you don't have a lot of success at Stanford in football in general. And so really uh, getting to the Rose Bowl with in the year 2000 with Tyrone Willingham was a big big deal they lost that game but they got there it was kind of a breakout thing and then Jim Harbaugh had some nice seasons but then it's been all David Shaw I mean really David Shaw took him to a Fiesta Bowl uh, three Rose Bowls and you know he won 10 games or more multiple times and I think you know there's a lot of people at Stanford that there a lot of Stanford fans are frustrated but look at David Shaw's record of winning, you know, 10 or more games. He's got five seasons in his time there that he's won 10 or more. He's had them in the top 10 in the AP poll three times. I just think it's a, you know, it would be akin to, you know, he had a very similar record as Chip Kelly had, you know, in like his first three seasons. So it would really be akin to how many mediocre or bad seasons would Chip Kelly have to have before Oregon would have fired him. And so I kind of think, you know, David Shaw has even more institutional momentum because, you know, you got just his connection to the Bay Area, his connection to Stanford, his connection to the university. So I I just think the fans are going to be upset. The fans are going to be mad. But you also, you know, they may lose patience, but I don't think the athletic director and I don't think the key alumni at Stanford are going to lose patience with him not this year. And wouldn't a big thing be also it's it's so hard to recruit to Stanford and he has that proven success, right? You talked about how they haven't been good, but he has shown that they've had success there. It, could it just be that they know that he's done it before, so hopefully he figures it out because it is such a plus, tough place to recruit to? That too, and then he played there. I mean, just the connection. You're you're literally looking at, you know, you know, Mark Helfrich got fired at Oregon after taking Oregon to a title game, but I think everybody viewed Oregon as that was Chip Kelly's team and Marcus Mariota was on it. So, you know, David Shaw, if you go back to 2018, he had a nine-win season. He won nine wins. He had he won nine games in 17. He won 10 games in 16. He won 12 games in 15. You know, there's three ro- there's two Rose Bowls, three Rose Bowls in a in a four-year period, and so I think it's going to be really hard just based on the, this season and last season, because that's really what we're talking about, uh, for people to fire David Shaw. So I, I do think there is some growing sentiment in that fan base. I get emails from diehard Stanford fans who are like, you know, what's wrong with Stanford? Here's what I think happened to Stanford. I think you had 
Name, image, likeness. I think he had transfer portal. Stanford's not going to get guys in the portal the way others are. They're not going to lose some guys because I think the allure of the Stanford degree holds some people there. But I think Stanford lost an edge that it had and enjoyed before the portal. And then here's the other thing. The, the way that Stanford wanted to play under David Shaw is the same way that, you know, it's very similar to what Utah and Kyle Whittingham are doing. And, you, and Kyle Whittingham's doing it, you know, a little better. And Kyle Whittingham can get some guys into Utah that, can't, you know, you can't get into Stanford. So I think, you know, he's kind of cornered the market on what Stanford wanted to do with the physicality and the big offensive line and maybe some defensive line and run the football and, you know, play a little pro style. But so I think, you know, and then Jonathan Smith comes on the scene. And so I think some of what Stanford wanted to do was taken by Kyle Whittingham in Utah some of what Stanford wanted to do is taken by Oregon State. And if we're being real, probably the end of the Chris Peterson era was also like Washington was running some of the same similar type stuff as Stanford was. So I think I, I'm not ready to give up on David Shaw, and I, I, but I think some fans are ready to. And, you know, but I do think he would get one more probably. But look at his overall record. He's 94-47. and 47 despite having struggled in the last two seasons. So I think he's got some he's got some currency there, I guess is the easy answer. But I know Stanford fans are very disappointed in what's going on at Stanford. That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know today. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. But the big splash. Well, Nets coach Steve Nash speaking out today said he wants to make it clear that his relationship with Kevin Durant is good heading into this season. Are you buying that? This statement comes following a rough summer for the organization. Remember, Durant asked for a trade. Then he asked for Nash and general manager Sean Marks to be fired. Steve Nash says we're fine after the first official practice of the season. We're good, he said. I guess they've talked. They love each other for now. Keep an eye on that. Uh, I don't think that that story is over. Coming up next, Kyle Whittingham, Utah's coach. He'll be joining us to talk about Saturday's game. They'll host Oregon State. Kyle Whittingham uh, probably looking at film of last year's game at Research Stadium where the Utes got run all over. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. If you're subscribed to me at johnconzano.com, you received in real time this morning in your email inbox my column on Fred and Diane Hope. Now, I'm not going to spoil the whole column. I'm not going to read it to you here and now. But I'm going to tell you there is a gift buried in that column. I know when I was writing it, I had a smile on my face. Fred and Diane, I met them years ago. Um, I'm just going to tell you, if you think there's nothing to see this football season, this basketball season, I would tell you to look again. Check it out at johnconzano.com. Grab a free subscription. Grab a paid subscription. Whatever works for you, do it. And uh, you do that, you will get it in real time. Uh, and you can read it at your convenience. It'll be delivered right to your email inbox. If you want to check it out, just go to johnconzano.com. Kyle Whittingham. And Utah, they will host Oregon State on Saturday at Rice-Eccles Stadium. 
Uh, really big football game. Now, I am told, you know, we dialed up Kyle Whittingham for this interview, and I, we expected we would get his administrative assistant. Like Utah said, here's the phone number. You call it. You get his administrative assistant. No, 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 no. Kyle Whittingham answering his own damn phone these days. If It begs a question. Coach, thank you for joining us. Coach, uh, what's going on? You're answering your own phone these days? Hell yes. I'm not too big for that. What do you mean? I love Come that. <laughs> I love that. I think people get the idea that football coaches don't answer their own phone. I don't know if they park their own car, but Kyle Whittingham, man of the people. All right. How much game film are you guys watching of last year's Oregon State game? Oh, a lot. I mean, they, they took it to us, uh, particularly with our defense. Um couldn't stop the run. I mean, they, they, they ran the ball on us very efficiently, and and that was the difference in the game. I mean, uh, you know, offensively, we played pretty decent, but uh, we just couldn't get any stops when we needed to, and and uh, that was uh, the thing that did us in. I always look at college coaches, and we expect, what do we want? We want consistency. You probably want consistency, but you're dealing with 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. <laughs> I have one yeah. of those in my household. Uh, you know, it's not all that consistent all the time. So how do you manage that as a coach? Yeah, well, you're looking, uh, you know, for a culture in your program to to kind of, uh, you know, with your older guys to uh, get the younger guys, you know, understanding what what it takes to play at the level uh, of football that we play and, and uh, what we're all about and how to act and how to carry yourself. And and uh, that's really something that's, you know, been a strength of ours, I think, through the years is, is uh, when we get guys coming into our program, our mantra is, you know, you will become us, we won't become you. And that that has uh, helped us through the years. I love that. Uh, the opening week, uh, I, I think it's always tough to go anywhere in, in week one. But you you had a disappointing result. How how did you feel about the bounce back in the last couple of weeks from your guys? I think very good. Um, you know, we didn't play well, particularly on defense in, in the first game. And, and again, much like the Oregon State game last year, the run defense was was what uh, was lacking, and and that's. Uh, an anomaly for us because we're usually really good against the run, but in those two particular games we weren't. But uh, we bounced back, um, got things rolling a little bit. Um, you know, had a, a decent showing down at uh, in Tempe last week, but but uh, we know the degree of difficulty gets higher this week. The Beavers are playing well; they're well coached, they got good players, and it'll be a big challenge for us. What'd you see when you look at film of Oregon State and USC? Well, good, great game. I, I thought it would be a higher scoring game than what it was. You know, going in, I think everybody did. You know, thought there'd be a little more uh, offense to it. But, but uh, you know, the thing that uh, really obviously hurt Oregon State in that game were the turnovers. If, if not for the turnovers, it's it's probably a different outcome. But, but uh, you know, I think Jonathan's done a great job up there. He's built that thing the right way, and uh, you know, I think they're definitely on an upward trajectory. You know, I, we always talk about coaches learning about their teams. At what what game did you learn the most about your team? Oh boy, uh, this this year I don't know. That's that's a good question. It's just uh, been a a. Uh, you know, a learning process pretty much every week. I mean, we, we learned the first week that, that we didn't uh, do a good enough job coaching in the run defense. And then the, the second week, we, uh, you know, we got uh, the offense untracked uh, even more so than the first game and put up a bunch of points. Then against San Diego State, uh, we took another step forward defensively. And, and uh, Arizona State was a, was a good team effort. We, we played well on both sides of the ball. So I think we're heading in the right direction, hopefully. And, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, 
still a work in progress. I mean, obviously everybody is just trying to figure out, you know, what we do best and, and uh, just trying to continue to compete week in and week out. What's the most part of the fun part of coaching for you? Is it game? Is it prep? Is it the game plan? Where do you have the most joy? I would say game day itself. I mean, that's why you're in it for the the, the competitive, you know, to be in the competitive arena and, and to watch your guys perform on Saturdays, and and uh, that's uh, something that that uh, I've always enjoyed. I think as soon as you you don't enjoy game day, it's time to time to step down and get out of it. But but uh, the most rewarding thing about the job is watching these guys get their degrees and and come in maybe a little bit uh, of a wild onion and leave uh, you know a guy with a degree in hand and and ready to be a, a solid contributor to society so i think that's the most rewarding part of it i love the wild onion part i'm going to reuse that <laughs> cam camerizing he's he was so good last year so i mean i just i i expected him to just continue what is he doing well this year what does he need to clean up he's doing pretty much everything well he's protecting the football um his completion percentage is up he's uh doing a great job as a leader he's the leader of of our leaders he's the alpha dog of the football team and everybody looks to him and i would say through four games he's uh, been exactly what we needed him to be and and uh like i said he's, he's doing all the things at the quarterback position that at least in our offense that we need him to do we are uh, now kind of examining the landscape of the conference what do you see in the Pac-12 this season, what's what's shaping? I think there's a lot of teams that have improved. I think there's uh, it's been an uptick uh, for most teams. Obviously, there's some teams that are struggling, but but uh, I mean, you look at both Washington schools; they seem to be very good and uh, competitive. Both Oregon schools, obviously, are good. Um, you know, both both Southern California schools are undefeated, and so I think there's a lot of a lot of. Uh, you know, teams that have that have made uh, progress and and uh, are improved over last season. Are you watching any NFL football, or are you so consumed with the college game and you don't get a chance to see it at all? I don't get a, a lot of opportunity, but I watch every opportunity I can. My son is a, a with the Chiefs and yeah. been with the Chiefs for five years now, so that's obviously I have a huge vested interest in in them. And Andy Reid is a close friend of mine. We play college ball together, so so uh, definitely follow those guys closely. And and uh, anytime I do get a chance, uh, you know Thursday nights is a good night to uh, check out an NFL game. And and uh, I'm very very much an NFL fan. Did you stream that? Thursday night. I guess you did. If you watched it, like oh, yeah. you know, everybody was buzzing about it. What was your experience like? Was it smooth? I thought so. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. There was a couple glitches in the stream, at least at my house. I don't know if it was yeah. across the country, but but uh, it seemed to be pretty good. And uh, you know, Herb Street and you know those guys did a great job. Do you see like okay? So you watch the NFL, you watch college ball. Do you see the influence of college football on the NFL more right now, or the or is it vice versa? Is there more NFL influence on on what you guys are doing? I'd say vice versa. I think the NFL is uh, the standard, and I think uh, sometimes it takes us uh, here in college a few years uh, of lag time before we realize, hey, yeah, what they're doing, and you know, in one respect or another, is a pretty good idea. We follow suit, and so I'd say that that uh, far more uh, the NFL sets the standard, and we uh, you know we pick up uh, on what they're doing. You guys had a targeting foul. I mean, every season we see this kind of stuff, and you know, as a defensive guy, I know you teach it. It's hard to get kids to, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment to uh, to to do uh, what's perfect. What do you think should be happening with targeting? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, player safety is obviously first and foremost, but I think when they when they uh, are 
uh, implementing and calling and reviewing the targeting files, I think intent to me has got to be weighed very, very heavily. And when, it, like for example, a defender comes in to make a tackle in a second, the the offense player ducks down or, or changes body posture and and it's uh, incidental. I don't think that should be called. I think it's got to be intent. Where you hey you measured this guy up, you took a shot, and it was obvious that you were you were you know using the helmet as a weapon and, and going helmet to helmet. And I think there's a lot of things that are being called where the the intent was not there, and yet they're being penalized. I also I, I cringe when I see kids that you know have to they're ejected and then they miss part of the next game. Or I, I feel like that penalty maybe should be looked at or you know like to your point the intent of it feels like maybe maybe it should be hey you're lost for the rest of the quarter or you're you know you're lost for this game but it feels like it's a little bit stiff it is. I, I agree. It's a little. Uh, it's a little bit too harsh. And and again, I'm not trying to say, hey, let's back off and, right. and let it uh, become more prevalent. But uh, I think the NFL has it right. You know, I think the NFL has it right. I'd like to see us follow suit more of what they're doing. Kyle Whittingham with us. Uh, they will host Oregon State on Saturday. You get a day game. Do you like a day game? Love a day game. The earlier, the better. We'd like to kick off at 8 a.m. if, if possible. You know, we, we'll, we, we'll show up. You know, just, just tell us when to be there, and we'll, we'll be there. But uh, the earlier, the better. There's, you know, so that's not realistic in the Pac-12. Obviously, you get very few opportunities for that. Most of our games uh, are, uh, you know, 6 p.m. or later, and so we get used to the, the long days and and uh, waiting for kickoff. But uh, we relish the opportunity to play early. You know, I remember in high school, and then I played some community college football. Like it was a big deal to play. On under the lights, right? We were all excited. It was going to be a night game on a Friday night or a Saturday night. Uh, but now, you know, you practiced in the daylight. Like, do you guys, like this week, uh, you know, your practice schedule versus kickoff time, do you do any adjustment there if you're playing a, light, a late game, early game? Not with practice, but we do with our, our meals and nutrition. You know, we'll get up and, and get them up early in the morning and mimic the, the pregame meal time and get them used to, you know, consuming calories and, and eating uh, when we'll have the pregame meal on Saturday. And so if we do have a, an earlier game, we'll, we'll go ahead and get them up and get their systems going so they can, you know, kind of get used to it. I don't know if it does any good, but that's that's something we try to do. It's a theory, at least. At least you're trying yeah. something. you gotta, you got kind of yeah. got to do that. Can you remember back in the day, like, you know, all this body clock stuff, like, it, it it didn't exist. Like when you were playing in high school, I was playing in high school. It didn't exist. You're right. You're right. And I don't ever remember, you know, having a, when you're that young, having anything bother you. But, but uh, yeah, you're right. I agree with you. All right, Coach, uh, I really appreciate you giving us some time. A big crowd there. I've been there a few times. Uh, I will be there Saturday. So uh, I always expect a huge crowd. What is it about the Utah fans? Like they show up. They do. They absolutely do. And if, and you know, back to kickoff time. If there's, uh, I, I think our stadium is a little, a little more raucous. Is that the right word? Yeah. On, on night games, you know, they seem to gear up for night games. And so that, that is the one uh, positive about a night game is it seems like our crowd is even more enthusiastic. But but they show up regardless. We've had ten straight years of sellouts, and and uh, we increased our capacity last year to just over, I think it's fifty one four, right around that uh, number. And and they're, you know, we're still selling out. And so. Uh, great support, and uh, you know our, our guys love playing in front of the home crowd here at Rice Eccles. Coach, thank you. Okay, John, great yeah. to visit with you. Appreciate I, you. All right, take care. Okay, bye-bye. There he is, Kyle Whittingham, Utah football coach. Now I need to know, does Dan Lanning answer in his own phone, in his office? Is Jonathan Smith answering his phone? I'll ask Jonathan on tomorrow's show. I'm going to text Lanning right now. Ask him, you picking up your own phone? Are, are you even texting? Like, hey, dirty little secret back in the day. 
when Willie Taggart was posting to social media, the former Oregon coach, it kind of came out, and he's probably not alone, but it came out that somebody else was tweeting and posting for him. It came out, and some of it was scheduled. Like, I had some other coaches in the Pac-12 conference say, you know that guy's not even tweeting for himself, um, and point that out. But I don't know how big a sin that is, really. But Kyle Whittingham, you call him up, apparently he picks up his own damn phone. There you go. Oregon State is a double-digit underdog going to Rice-Eccles Stadium. It's interesting that it's a day game. Probably helps Oregon State that the Utah fans aren't going to be sitting around all day getting hyped into a frenzy. I also think Oregon State losing to USC probably takes a little bit of the, the oomph off this game for the fan base in Utah. I could be wrong. We'll check in later in the week with Bill Riley of ESPN Radio in Salt Lake City and, and Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune. But feels like a little bit of the shine comes off the game because Oregon State has a conference loss already. But this is a big bounce-back game for Jonathan Smith and Oregon State. I'm really interested to see how they show up psychologically, how prepared they look, how locked in they look. Um, I expect that they will be. I also think Utah is the best team in the Pac-12 conference. I think it's a tall order right now for Oregon State to go in there a week after suffering a loss against USC and now have to play Utah. But I think for the rest of the conference, everybody's kind of curious to see what happens in this game because they're going to use Oregon State to kind of gauge the Utah-USC game that is happening uh, just coming up here on the 15th of October. So it'll be really interesting to see how Utah plays against Oregon State, which team looks better schematically, what does Utah do. Really, really fun. I want you to leave it here. Anna's going to join us next. you got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. If this radio show were a canoe, we would uh, we would be front-heavy. The front of the show today included interviews with Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach Jack Coletto, the uh, resident uh, jackhammer at Oregon State, and uh, now Kyle Whittingham, the Utah coach. Anna's popped into the studio. Sean raised a great question last hour, Anna, about Stanford. And and granted, look, Sean has been on this earth. How long, Sean? 23 and three quarters years. 20, all right, if you're doing quarters and halves, you know it. <laughs> I turned 24 in February. <laughs> our our six-year-old said she, this morning, we said, you're six? And she said, no. She said, I'm six and a half. So uh, that's why we're laughing. My, but, my uh, son, who's seven, he's going to turn eight in like a week. He's been telling everyone he's eight for like the last month. <laughs> he's <laughs> looking forward. And then one day you stop counting, and that's when you know you've arrived. Uh, but I, I gave Sean some homework during the Kyle Whittingham interview. I sent him, because he, he asked why David Shaw is not in trouble, because in Sean's lifetime, He's watched Stanford win and win and win and now fall off a cliff. They're in a rut. It is evident they're in a rut. So he asked right before uh, the 4 o'clock hour, why isn't David Shaw in trouble? My quick answer to that is, historically, Stanford football has not been good. Um, you have the transfer portal, NIL. You had a pandemic. I think you know Stanford is willing to give David Shaw, who went to Stanford, uh, a wider berth. Also, you know David Shaw does some things at Stanford that that get that the Stanford community love like this like 
a lot of universities need the football coach to win and show up at the banquet and shake hands with the big donors, and that's the job. At Stanford, that front-facing stuff that David Shaw does with the community and the Alumni Association and the, the people who are important on that campus probably means more at Stanford than in other places. Um, Sean, during, I gave him some homework during the Kyle Whittingham interview. I sent him Stanford football history year by year. I said, just take a look at the wins and losses. I, I, I want to know what you got out of that, Sean, when you looked at that. Yeah, it shows that from 2010, kind of the start of the Jim Harbaugh era, to 2018, in which they went nine and four, was kind of the outlier. Um, it's it's you know it shows the records before that they were kind of average with a couple of outlier years. So, man, I I just grew up and it was Stanford and teams like Boise State and yeah. just there's some teams that were so good and now are just so average and you know like the same thing with Boise State they were so good and the fans are upset there and so we're calling for Andy Avalos to be fired so I'm just wondering why it's not David Shaw because again these records I mean 2019 4 and 8 they did well during the COVID year 4 and 2 whatever and then the last couple of years have just been awful they're not even competing at the Pac-12 level anymore I think you got to give him a little bit of room this year they've been disappointing but I also think when you look at that history you get an idea of like there's some success that has happened under Jim Harbaugh and, and David Shaw in particular, that just didn't exist. Even with John Elway as part of the program, they were good, but they weren't great. Like, they weren't top 10 in the AP poll like David Shaw had them a few times. And they didn't go to three Rose Bowls in four seasons like David Shaw did. And so I think he gets a wide berth because of that. I wonder, too, uh, how how important is football to Stanford? Because if you look at other schools in that sort of academic tier, like they call Stanford the Ivy League of the West Coast, right? I don't think of other Ivy League schools and go, oh, yeah, those are real, like, football powerhouses. Like, Stanford among them might be among the stronger, you know, football schools, but I wonder if the interest and the enthusiasm for the sport has waned over time, especially as they have other sports that are coming up real high. Like you hear a lot about Stanford golf, you know, and other types of golf, sports. tennis, water polo, uh, you know, St Stanford baseball, women's basketball, um, it, you know, and you look even, you know, I talked to Bernard Muir, who is the athletic director at Stanford. I talked to him in the summer. I was doing this thing on, um, you know, Father's Day, and I was reaching out to a bunch of Pac-12 people and asking them about their dads, and Bernard Muir at Stanford was one of those people, like, and it was really interesting to me, like, his parents did not, they were all about education. They weren't all about sports, and it probably wouldn't have meant a lot to his father and mother that he was the athletic director, but it would have meant a lot that he was at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And that Stanford community, look, I grew up about, 30 miles away from the Stanford campus, maybe 35 miles away from the Stanford campus, it's a different place. You know, it is just, it kind of carries itself different. And I always looked at Stanford and thought, oh, they're a little stuffy and snobby. But now that I see it, I understand, like, they're playing for different stakes. And I think you hit on it. Like, I think that that whole, you know, all the Olympic sports do matter more to them mm -hmm. than other things. 
And, you know, they're busy going, hey, we, uh, we're conscientious about the world and we're going to change the world. And, you know, we might invent the next Google and we might do, <laughs> you know, football is important to us. Right. But go to a football game at Stanford right now. There's not, it, they're not selling out. Like, you know, they have hardly anybody in the stadium. It's a real problem yeah. at Stanford. So I, I think if it were, if the football were more important, David Shaw would be in a lot more trouble. Mm-hmm. Especially after last year, he went. What did he go four and eight last year, Sean? Like you got you got the numbers in front of you, like he and he looks like he's facing another sort of four and eight. But I told Sean this off air. I said, look, USC got Caleb Williams, okay. Washington got Michael Penix, Oregon got Bo Nix, Utah brought Cam Rising in. These are there. There are seven transfer quarterbacks playing in the Pac-12 right now. Stanford can't do that. They can't academically bring a guy. They couldn't have got Caleb Williams or Michael Penix or Bo Nix or any of these guys in. It would have been really difficult for Stanford to get them in school and go, all right. you know. So Stanford is at a dis- little bit of a disadvantage playing the game of today's college football. Today's college football, that's fair. Uh, they went 3-9 and nine last year um, with their last win being Week 5 against Oregon. They didn't win after that. But, yeah, yeah it just feels like they, they used to recruit really well. Like, you know, they had guys like Christian McCaffrey, guys like Andrew Luck, who I know were big recruits. They used to be at the top of the, the Pac-12 recruiting rankings, and now they're just not there. So, you know, it's... It, it feels like maybe it's NIL and transfer portal that they just they can't quite keep up. Yeah, it's it's a problem. But David Shaw brought this up on Media Day because we had him on, and I I left the interview feeling like he knew something we didn't. He said he was felt like he was a tiger lying in the weeds. He said that, and but he I asked him about the transfer portal, and he said, on one hand, we don't it's not accessible to us. We can't play that game. And oh by the way. The whole NIL game that's being played by, you know, a lot of the uh, boosters and donors and stuff, the Stanford boosters and donors aren't down to play that game. So, um, you know, they're going, you're getting a Stanford education. Why, why would you need, you know, mm. you know you're getting a scholarship. Uh, like, but conversely, Stanford doesn't lose a bunch of guys to the portal either. So what David Shaw has focused on in the last two years is he, for the first time two years ago, brought – underclassmen into spring football. Stanford traditionally has not done that. Like, mm-hmm. you've seen some universities. Oregon, Mario Cristobal wanted to get those guys on campus and get them enrolled early. They were skipping their senior prom to get onto campus to play spring ball at Oregon. Uh, Stanford has never done that. Two years ago, David Shaw started doing it. So I think he knows he's at a disadvantage and he's trying to do some things, but um, I think you got some problems. And then you have, as I mentioned, you got Utah, Trying to play the same game you play with physical players, two tight ends, you know, win with big defensive tackles, and and Utah can get some guys into schools that, that, that Stanford can. I mean, it's just a fact. I think Stanford and Cal really do, I think, operate at a little disadvantage in the conference with academics being uh, a bigger obstacle. Sam in Portland's called in. Sam, what's up, man? John, you know where I'm going to go with this, but uh, so I'm going to try and be uh, nice about it. I'm glad we're having this discussion. You're having this discussion about David Shaw and, you know, when when is too much, you know, when's the time for him to leave because he's had some down years, I think four now. So I would ask you sincerely, if Barnum can't turn it around this year, he's a five and seven you're, you're coach. talking about, wait a minute, we're talking about Stanford here, and now you want to, you just gave me whiplash. I, I want to talk about, Coaches, and when is when is the time 
to move on from coaches. I mean, if we're talking about Shaw, let's talk about Barnum. I mean, how does this guy still all right, have a job? Let, all right, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. All right, all right, Stanford's got a home football stadium. Stanford has an endowment. Stanford operates in a Power 5 conference. Portland State has to go out to Hillsboro. They have to play money games. They have to uh, go play San Jose State. Go play Washington, go play Arkansas, and then, oh, by the way, jump into your conference play after you're all beat up and go try to win games. I think it's really an apples-to-oranges conversation. I want to know, Sam, what is it about Portland State really that bothers you? Let's drill down on that. Like, let's be real, be authentic with me right now. What is, what is your axe to grind with Portland State? Well, I don't have an axe to grind with. I, I mean, honestly, nobody else. Nobody's calling in. No, no, no. Nobody's calling in asking about Portland State. What is it, Sam? What did Portland State do that bothered you? Well, I graduated from there. I don't have an axe to grind with them. What my frustration is that the, there's no consistency, especially when it comes to white coaches and black coaches. We've had this discussion many times. He had a nine and three season. He had a 15-game losing streak. He had an 0-11 season. He should have been fired then, but everyone's making excuses. I'm a Viking. I want them to win. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope they go yeah, on I, to win the rest look, of the game. I, I, it, to, it, is not, it is not a black and white issue. You, you're not going to come on the show and try to make this about race. It's not a black and white issue, Sam. Then. How, how does the guy still have a job? I, I, he can't win. Here, here's what it's about. Portland State doesn't have resources. They don't even have a home stadium. How do you think anybody could recruit to Portland State right now? They're playing out in Hillsboro. They don't have the support of their administration. They have to play payday games because they're supporting the rest of the athletic department. What, do you want them to beat Washington? You want them to go win at San Jose State? You want them to beat Arkansas? What do you want them to do? And then they got to turn around and they got to play a conference game at Montana, a top five team in, in their division. Like, it's a really tough ask. I don't know. Vince Lombardi wouldn't win under those circumstances. It's not black and white. It's about green. It's about money. Well, I, I think we agree to disagree. I, th I I agree with some of the things you're saying, but I think that, uh, you know, there's, you know, with all due respect, I think you make too many excuses for the program and where they're at now. A lot of those things could be overcome. And if you listen to Barnum talk, he, he, if you ask him, he's got the best team in the Big Sky Conference, and they're going to win every, every weekend. So at, at what point, John, I guess is – what point do we turn the corner? Because there are a lot of Viking fans, not as passionate as me, to call in that are just tired of the losing. I mean, we remember. Okay, then, the then what you need to do. What point do we turn the corner? What you need to do if you're tired of losing is the administration at Portland State needs to do more. The university president, Stephen Piercy, it's embarrassing the support that he gives to, you know, to Portland State athletics. He shows up to the spaghetti feed and shows up to one football game every season, like he's supporting the football program. Uh, you know, the feasibility study that they did with collegiate uh, uh, athletic sourcing, that, that feasibility study they put out, you know, it, they were looking at, should we drop football? We don't have a home stadium or not. Like, I, I still think they're going to keep football, but this is a program that you cannot reasonably come on this show and try to compare the record of Bruce Barnum to the record of David Shaw. And and frankly, I don't think David Shaw should get fired right now. Like, I, I'm going to give him a year or two more before I look at Stanford and go, hey, it's time to make a change because David Shaw went to three Rose Bowls. 
And that's not about David Shaw being African-American. It's about David Shaw having some great success at a school that didn't have success historically. How do we, how do we get on this idea that Portland State should be held to the same standard as a Power 5 conference school? If you're an alumni, I would ask you, like, are you making a donation to the athletic department? Are you, are you calling the university president and saying, hey, we need a stadium. What can I do to help? Like, at a Power 5 university, that's what would happen to spirited donors. But I don't hear that. I just hear a bunch of complaining and, you know, oh, what are they supposed to do, fire them during a pandemic? Like, Portland State can't even, fire, they can't even afford that. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I like a good spirited discussion on this show. I do. I do. But don't come on here with an agenda underneath what you're really talking about that, you know, a hidden agenda. Don't come on here and and be afraid to say what you, the reason is that you're upset. Like the caller's mad that Bruce Barnum gets a wide berth at Portland State. Well, gee, uh, you know, let's just take it to the extreme. When I was a young sports writer working at a small community newspaper many moons ago, uh, you know, I covered Little League games. I covered high school games. You know what we didn't do if someone made an error in a Little League game? We didn't put their name in the paper. We didn't blame them. You know what we didn't do when somebody coached a high school team and didn't get wins? We didn't say, oh, they need to be fired. Portland State is somewhere in the sliding scale of sports. Uh, They're not the NFL. They're not uh, major, major college football. They're not in the top ten of the of the uh, Power Five conferences. Uh, oh, wait, they're not even in the Power Five. Uh, they're a Big Sky program that unfortunately got squeezed out of their home stadium. It's really difficult to recruit when you're playing games out in Hillsboro. Get very little support from the administration on campus. And look, I think if the caller wanted to go on truth serum, that... It is there. There is an issue of race that is in play in this conversation. Nigel Burton was the former Portland State football coach. He got fired for lack of performance, but he got fired at a time when Portland State had a home stadium. Bruce Barnum has taken over. He took Portland State to the playoffs in his division. Portland State hadn't been to the playoffs in some time. Uh, he got a long-term contract extension. He's got a wide berth. Unfortunately, in the last few years, Portland State got pushed out of their home stadium. They endured a pandemic. The Big Sky Conference in general has really seen a division between the haves and the have-nots. They've gone separate ways. And you have um, the transfer portal and resources playing a bigger role, I think, in that level of football than probably is even being played in the Power Five conferences. Should Bruce Barnum win more games? Yes. Do I think he's going to win more games this year? I do. I think in the next three, he probably wins two of the next three games. But I don't expect him to win at Washington. I don't expect him to beat San Jose State, and they damn near did. And, you know, he does a lot of things right, and I'm going to give him credit for that. Am I soft on Bruce Barnum and Portland State because I don't hold them to the same expectations as Stanford and David Shaw or Oregon and Oregon State? If so, call me soft. Let's take some phone calls. I want your opinion. 503-417-7575. J.D.'s in McMinnville. Go ahead, J.D. Yeah, hey, John. Um, you know, man, I 
I am like with you on this pretty much 100% because I'm in my mid 40s and I had season tickets to Portland State when I was a young kid. And we sat in the front row when they were in their D2 heydays. And man, it was Civic Stadium back then. They sold out every game. It was a wild atmosphere. It wasn't, are we going to win today? It was, how much are we going to win by back in the pokey days? And then when Tim Walsh came in after that. But when the administration doesn't give them anything, they don't support any athletic program at Portland State, you can't expect Bruce Barnum to go out there and win nine or ten games a year when he's barely begging kids to come there and play football for him. That's just my take on it. I don't, I don't know how, what you yeah. feel about what I'm saying. but Yeah, no, I, I think it's valuable. You, you've been there. You've been in the stands. You were there before I was there. Pokey Allen, you know, was fantastic. Mouse Davis before him, fantastic and a lot of fun. And But they were also playing a division of football that was lower than where Portland State is playing right now. They're playing Division One football now. They're not playing Division Two football. There's nobody left to play in Division Two football. Portland State can't go D2 anymore because they would have to travel thousands of miles to get games. So you now have... Um, you now have they can't go they can't go NAIA either because the NAIA schools like Linfield, let's be real, they're not they're going to look down their nose at Portland State. They're not going to say they're not going to let Portland State play in the NAIA. They're going to go well. Wait a minute, you know we're we're about a, a different level of academics and private institutions. That's that's the reality of it. So Portland State doesn't have anywhere to go. So where the world they live in is. They have to play Washington and Oregon and Oregon State and San Jose State and whoever and try to make a million to a million and a half dollars a year getting their ass kicked in the opening part of the season. Then they have to turn around and they have to compete in the big sky. They are at a disadvantage and they have no stadium. So they're recruiting against Montana, Montana State, Sac State, UC Davis, who all have home stadiums, who all have more history more momentum. It is a tough job at Portland State. It's interesting to hear that caller, you know, talk about the days when the Vikings uh, were competitive in football and how exciting that would have been to go down to Civic Stadium and watch them and support what is truly a hometown team. Like, I would love for that to happen again. But it makes me question, like, why have a football team if the administration isn't going to fund it? isn't going to support it like it it almost doesn't make sense to me that the team and the athletic department has to work so hard and i know that that football team is subsidizing you know the rest of the athletic department there's your answer with the revenue the, the administration at portland state they don't want to pay for football they don't want to pay for basketball they don't want to pay for volleyball they don't want to pay for soccer but guess what pays for val volleyball, basketball, and soccer? Football. So Portland State administration supports football to the point where football bails them out in those other sports. So Stephen Piercy, who's getting ready to leave Portland State, and good riddance to Stephen Piercy, who came on this show and fed us a bunch of nonsense about how he supports the football program and then disappeared back into his office. Um, you know, they need, a, they need a university president who understands or maybe values athletics and sees that men's basketball, women's basketball, soccer, volleyball, football, these kinds of things can be 
sources of pride on a campus. Absolutely. You've done right. Steven and Sean, you guys have been quiet. You don't like conflict. No, I, I don't mind conflict. I just I was letting you go. Go off, King. Um <laughs> But uh no I, I just mean, don't like when callers like Sean, did the caller tell you he wanted to talk about Portland State or did he call and say I want to talk about David Shaw? It, it was David Shaw. You know, I, I yeah. didn't go too much into the detail with the caller. I basically right. said, Hey, you want to join this conversation on David Shaw? And he said, Yup, and I said, All right, I'll pull up. Disingenuous. Yeah. See that 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 kind of bugs me too. Like if you're gonna call in, you want to talk about Portland State, just say, tell the call screener, tell the person you get on the phone, this is what I want to talk about. But he came in, interrupted our conversation about David Shaw, and pushed his own agenda. And the truth is, like, you know, Portland State has been to the Division I playoffs twice since 2000. In 22 years, they've made it twice. Tim Walsh took them in 2000. Bruce Barnum took them in 2015. Uh, you know, they have zero wins in the playoffs. That's Portland State. Like, what are the realistic expectations in football for Portland State, like, I've never had expectations of them to be really good. So, like, yeah, it's a tough spot for Portland State to be in because, like you said, there's no, like, investment in the program. So when Bruce Barnum doesn't win, am I surprised? No. When they do win, like you did in 2015, when they beat Washington State and North Texas, two FBS teams, like, that is shocking to me. That's not supposed to happen. So I don't really have any expectations of what I expect out of Portland State. So when I when Barnum comes on and talks about – how they're you know they've lost a few games but they expect to you know compete the next week i think that's a good sign i think the overall moral of kind of david shaw this bruce barnum conversation is that oftentimes in sports and in football when a team's not quite as good as they used to be or there's a couple losing seasons in a row and things just kind of topple out we we often call for those coaches to, to be fired, but I think Stanford and Portland State are two examples where it's not as black and white as that. You know, there's a lot more going yeah. on. Um, and, you know, uh, David Shaw is a, is a separate case than Bruce Barnum. Yeah, and I look, too, at, you know, Bruce Barnum's last two seasons. I mean, he's 5-8 and eight in his last two, and four of those games were payday games. Like, if you throw out the payday games, he's 5-4. and four. It in non-payday games, and you know I got to look at that, and I have to take that into consideration when I'm judging whether or not the guy should, you know, continue as the coach. Do I want Bruce Barnum at Portland State forever? No, it, you know, and it, and if he has a disappointing year this year, will it raise questions? Yes, but I think he knows that, and and I think he knows he's got an opportunity in the next three weeks to go win games. And you know what? I'm just glad we're talking about Portland State finally, like. Yeah, I think it was really, like, they had the season opener. They went to San Jose State. They lost 17-14 in that game, or they lost by one score. Close game, right to the end. I, I was disappointed for him because that was the kind of win he really needed. That was the kind of win Portland State really needed to get the attention of people who might go out to Hillsborough Stadium and see a game. Because the truth is, they you know, the Timbers have squeezed them out of, this, out of Providence Park. The city of Portland has done nothing to help Portland State athletics. The administration at Portland State has done nothing. It is a piss-poor support system. They have no safety net. And I'm surprised at this point that they are even having the success they're having, given what get what we know. And, I, you know, look, I should, go, I should get the consultants on who did the study. I talked to them off air. I talked to them. I texted with them. I read their 400-page study. And in the end, it made me sad. It just made me sad that, you know, they didn't have a home stadium. And they really, in their present form, without a home football stadium, should just be a basketball school. Like maybe they take the model of Gonzaga and they just play basketball. But the problem with that is you have 
football supporting everything else. The university's not going to support basketball. The question for me is, you know, if they do invest money into sports, how much are they going to get out of it? Because Portland State is such a big commuter school. Like, yeah. it's the school where a lot of the locals would go, you know, around this area where they're going to the four-year university but still live at home. So is it really like that college-style campus that you're going to be able to make money off of? It reminds me of San Jose State, but on the non-major Division One level, right? It's commuter campus. That's the kind of support they have. But I do think the answer is probably in student fees, uh, you know, sadly, because the administration isn't going to support it. And then here's the problem with student fees. The administration right now is collecting student fees, but it's keeping the money for itself. David's in Beaverton. Go ahead, David. Hi there. I think the, the key in moving things will put a little pressure on the city to do something about the stadium. Yeah. I mean, in Seattle, they play high school games at the foot at their football field, and we can't. And Portland State can't free up four nights a year. I know soccer is a big thing, but why is it that yeah. why is it that they cannot play there? That's just, and the city could do something about that. They give away everything. They gave away all tax revenue to yeah. the soccer. And uh, that would be supportive, and people would come because it's easy to get to. There yeah. used to be tailgaters down there, and that—that's yeah. what I think. Yeah, I think I think it's it's tough because the city signed a deal with the Timbers. While the Timbers don't own Providence Park, they operate it, and so MLS. This has been the Timbers' excuse that MLS makes them hold dates and say, "Hey, for playoff games, uh, we need to hold Thursday through Sunday." For the MLS playoffs, uh, and so Portland State was left, go, you know, going, "Hey, can we play a game on a Monday? Can we play a game on a Wednesday? Can we, you know?" And they finally decided, you know, we can't do that. Let's go out to Providence Park. Or, I mean, let's go out to Hillsborough. Maybe the solution is they should have two or three home games early in the season before it gets to playoff time for MLS. Then, and the Timbers should support that. I would feel better about what the Timbers are doing if they didn't squeeze Portland State out of that building. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Happy hour coming up, 5 o'clock hour. We'll give you the 5 at 5. We'll play some punch it audio in the happy hour. Peter Sampson coming up on 750 The Game at uh, 6 o'clock, The Pulse with Peter Sampson. Daryl is from Myrtle Creek and is called in. What's up, Daryl? Not much. I got a question about the Portland State program. Isn't there any way that they can put pressure, somebody, students, I don't know, somebody, um, put pressure on the, the faculty, you know, the president, uh, the 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 university itself to support the football team more? I mean, yeah. do a sit-in or something. You know, yeah. do some kind of protest. I, unfortunately, I appreciate that call, but unfortunately, the pressure, I think, is going to have to come from us. It's going to have to come from this audience. It's going to have to come from sports fans in the state. And here's here's what I would say to people who are listening who – may or may not have kids who go to high school and play youth football or whatever in our state. You know, Portland State should be a place for the kids who 
aren't able to get a scholarship at Oregon and Oregon State for them to go play college football in this state. It should be an option available to kids in this state. I fear if the university administration at Portland State doesn't support the athletic department that it we may not have a place for those kids to go play basketball, go play football, go play uh, you know other sports. But also, I kind of wonder like if the kids in the state kind of look down on Portland State because it isn't supported by the administration. How many kids are they losing who go, ah, I'll go to Montana, go to Montana State, go to Sac State, I'll go to a community college instead because I don't want to go to Portland State because the administration at Portland State doesn't support athletics. I think that is part of the equation. The comparison that was made earlier was between Stanford and Portland State. I'm going to give you two numbers. Stanford's endowment, $29 billion. Portland State, $98 million, with an M. Yeah, all right. Let's use some of that $98 million to build a stadium. Let's do that. I'm going to get Stephen Piercy, the outgoing president at Portland State, back on the show before he you know, runs out of town. Happy hour coming up next. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I got a question for Steven. I got a question for Sean. Before we do the 5 at 5, I got to know something. Steven, last night, Anna had her show. She hosts that expert show. Which means in our household, Monday night was a daddy put-down night. And that doesn't mean I walk around throwing insults at people. Or that people throw insults at me. It means I'm in charge. There's Anna's in a studio doing her show. The kids know that means we're probably eating something fun. They may be getting double dessert. Last night, we went and got ice cream. Six-year-old said, can I get two scoops? I said, it's a daddy put-down night. Come on. Two scoops, of course. Do you do such things in your house, Stephen? You're in charge? Uh, 100%, yeah, because I know if I don't, the kids will cause problems, and then it'll get frustrating for me, and then I'll get frustrated. So I just want to, like... Make sure that nobody's mad. So I try to make them as happy as I possibly can. You don't want any trouble. Yeah, because if I have to put them down for bed, I want them to be in a happy mood. I want them to be in a good mood because I've seen what they do to my wife when they are in a good mood. Yeah. So when I do it, I'm not ready for it. I need them to be as happy as possible. So, yeah, it's it's treat night when I'm there. Yeah. Double dessert. The girls go double dessert. And I'm like, it's daddy put down night. Uh, I, I guess think- I'll have to have double dessert, too. <laughs> I got to think. And Anna goes, you just trying to buy them off or whatever. Did you see how joyful they were when you said you had a show? Oh, yeah. Last night? Yeah, yeah. It's like yes day for them. They were like, oh, yeah, this it's is going to yes be day. awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, so we did that last night. They got double scoops or whatever. Or they get to, like, I never got to do this as a kid. My parents, it was always, I had to get, like, single scoop, kid size on a cake cone. I told the eight-year-old she wanted a waffle cone that had sprinkles and chocolate on it. And I was like, have at it. Mom's not here. (laughs) Whatever you want. It's so not fair. (laughs) You get to be the fun guy. Well. I have to be the no person. Sean, my question for you is, do you learn anything about parenting that you will use someday on this radio show? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely do. I feel like I've learned a lot about parenting on this show. 
Yeah. Being around Steven, you know, working with Judah, who's a brand new parent, um, work uh, being around Peter, who brings in his kid uh, to the show a lot, um, and then being around you guys, who have three kids of your own. You know, I I've definitely feel like I've I've learned a lot. All right, who rank the parents? No, uh, move on. <laughs> I'm I'm last. I'm last because I'm constantly. I know on radio, I, I'm constantly saying on this show, "Am I a bad dad?" And then I tell a story. So I can't be. I can't. I'm not no, a contender. Actually, that's a good sign. Like it's the people who don't ever question their own parenting that are most likely the worst parents. All right, good. Let's start there. What are the biggest parenting sins that you see out there? Spoiling your children. All right, you didn't, you didn't even Guilty. hesitate. Yes. You went right at me there. <laughs> oh, no, that's just in general. Yeah. If you took that to be you, then yeah. that's fine. <laughs> Steven, biggest parenting sins. Ooh. Um, all right. I mean, it's this is a, this is like a really specific thing, but like, uh, let's just say for you're going to a birthday party, right? Okay. And it's like a like a community birthday party like the whole class is there you know that's like a big thing now everyone invites every kid to the birthday party don't leave anybody out right and then the parent goes there drops their kid off and leaves that is a sin number one for me <laughs> because you know what you're putting pressure on all these other parents to watch this other kid yeah. who you don't even know right I don't know these kids if they're out of control who's gonna punish them nobody that yeah. that's my biggest you you that, should oh. have to chaperone that you should have to be there what happens something happens to your kid I know you right yeah. Can't just leave. Can't just drop your kid off and leave. What do you? I mean, come on. Bad form. Uh, here, here's one that I don't like, uh, or I think is a sin. Um, I think we had a pediatrician tell tell us this early on, and I wish I would have known it years and years ago. With the now, is she nineteen. Mm-hmm. Nineteen year old. Yeah, that's good parenting. Um, yeah. See, you know her there age. You mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. I got it locked down. Um, but the pediatrician said, get down on the floor and get eye to eye with them. And it sometimes that's all it takes. And there, and I got to be honest. There's some days where I feel like if I get down on the floor, I'm just going to go to sleep. <laughs> you know, like get down. Let's the- be real. You've had days where like if I go down, I might die. Like yeah. I, I'm I, so. I can't tired. lay down right now. <laughs> and may I get up? Um, but it, the pediatrician's right. Like sometimes it's just as simple as getting down there while they're playing Legos and kind of just watching them play. And I think there's a connection that happens there. So if you're allergic to getting eye level with your kids and getting down on the carpet or wherever they're playing, I think you're a bad parent for not doing that. I took that as act interested. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's my parenting skills. They know, though. They know. They know if you're faking it. Well. By the time they're telling you about their 13th Pokemon card and all of its strengths and weaknesses. I know. They know. Gets a little old. (laughs) Oh, really? That's amazing. Hey, Dad, what's your favorite water-type Pokemon? Uh, Yeah. I don't (laughs) know. I just named off 12 of them. Well, here's my thing. (laughs) I'm going to admit this on air. I'm not a big Lego guy. What? I never played with them as a kid. I never had them. We didn't really do Legos. I did Tinker Toys, and I did sp- everything sports. Can you be and bad at Legos? Because I'm with you. I'm bad at Legos. I'm bad at Legos. And the eight-year-old in our house is brilliant at Legos, and she wants to play Legos. And so I get down on the floor. I don't even know really what to do. And if I start to build something, she corrects me and basically looks at I me like it. I'm an idiot. I, got, I like, got it, Dad. I got it. It's not good for my self-esteem to play Legos with her. <laughs> She's better. So uh, I don't like I don't like playing Legos. Yeah, it frustrates you. But I'll get down there and 
My thing with Legos is I feel like when you put it, like, you know when, like, the kid gets a set? Yeah, the kit. That gets the kit, right? Yeah, yeah. You spend all this time putting it together. Mm-hmm. I feel like you should super glue it together. <laughs> because what pains me is I know I've built a couple of those houses with her. Mm-hmm. And they've been destroyed into a pile of rubble. Yeah, they're dismantled. Like, it's really disheartening to me because I'm like, <laughs> we built that. What, what happened to that? it? We didn't glue it together? Well, it's like a puzzle. Like, what's the point of that? Yes. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Steven, I know why we get along. Yeah. There it is. All right. The five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. Well, Chicago Bulls Lonzo Ball can't run. And can't jump without pain. Second knee surgery looming. Spent the summer rehabbing in Los Angeles, seeking second and third opinions from specialists. Told media that he just can't get it done right now. He's scheduled to undergo an arthroscopic surgery tomorrow. He's just saying there's a point where we would warm up and stuff, and I would go through certain days and it would be fine. But when he got to basketball activities, he just couldn't do it. I hope he gets to reflex. That would be my first thing. But I also am kind of wondering about the timing of this. Why did he wait until, like, the eve of the first practice to go, hey, I can't go? Like, didn't he know a month ago? Steven, help me out here. Lonzo Ball, what is he doing here? I just think that his it just hasn't gone his way with the injury. I think he was trying and it didn't work out. And so it's gotten so bad that they really just want to figure out what is exactly is wrong with him. Because it, that's not normal, John, to have your knee be in so much pain just walking around. Yeah. And, you know, as a basketball player, being able to walk around is important. So uh, I think for Lonzo, he's just got to get it 100% and stay out as long as he needs before he comes back. Reflexknees.com. Lonzo. Anna, number two, go. Watch out, Usain Bolt. Oregon State's College of Engineering has designed a star robo-athlete. Her name is Cassie. This is the world's fastest bipedal robot. Just clocked a 100-meter dash with a time of 24.73 seconds. That's supposed to be really good. Cassie was built with knees like an ostrich. No cameras or sensors, so it's basically blind. Uh, But this big single-entry race just went down at the school's track and field center. By the way, Bolt's 100-meter record is secure. It's at 9.58 seconds. But this is really good for a robot, or so, yeah. so I'm told. Does it scare you at all, a little bit? It's a little concerning, because I feel like this is going to develop into some kind of, like, uh, I don't know. It'll probably be licensed by the military or something. Right. Someday. And I kind of wonder at what point we'll be watching the Olympics, and they'll be like, now to the robot division. <laughs> Of the Olympics. I and then pretty like soon. the sport yeah. idea of blind sprinting. Blind sprinting. <laughs> New Olympic sport. Yeah. Well, Cassie has another major feat on her resume. She ran a 5K in 53 minutes last year. That's kind of ridiculous. Number three. Number three. Let's talk about gymnastics. Can I for a second? Jordan Childs, UCLA gymnast who made history twice at the Nationals. It says she is ready to bring the joy back to gymnastics. They're getting a new coach at UCLA. And, uh, you know, we we talk about sports all the time, the Olympic sports during the Olympics. But I think what Jordan Childs did 
And frankly, if you really, you know, if you watch the Olympics at all and you saw Jade Carey, Oregon State's gymnast, like, I, I felt like we had, like, a pretty good year away from the Olympics for gymnastics. Like, Oregon State had the all-around Olympic champion. UCLA's got a story. They had to assign a beat reporter from the L.A. Times to cover gymnastics with UCLA. Good time to be a gymnast in the Pac-12 conference. I guess that's what I'm saying. Okay, Dirk Nowitzki. Did you Steve not like Nash? that I went gymnastics? I tried to go off the radar. No, I like it. Okay, I like it. I was you trying. Know me. I I wanted to throw a change up there. Yeah. Okay. These are the five uh, most interesting, maybe not the most important news stories. Yeah, in sports I story. think gymnastics is important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's important. Uh, well, let me add on to that. Dirk Nowitzki, Steve Nash, and is it Luka Doncic? Am I saying that right? Um, they ditched their basketballs for tennis rackets this weekend. <laughs> They were hitting tennis uh, balls for charity in Texas, and uh, it was all part of charity. They were with other celebrities, and apparently they actually showed some serious athleticism on the tennis courts. They were hitting big-time shots, a lot of fun. I like when pro athletes go and do other sports like this. Like, I miss that show. The, Where, uh, the superstars. Yeah, it was, what is it, Battle of the Network Stars or yeah. something like that? Yep. I missed that show. I wish they would bring that back. That was Superstars competition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I liked seeing it too, but the athletes never go for it now. I know. They're all a bunch of prima donnas. They don't want to race on bikes and do power lifting. They don't want to embarrass themselves. Mm-hmm. Finally, I'll go mainstream with my fifth. Aaron Judge. Last Tuesday, hit his 60th home run and put Major League Baseball on high alert. He's chasing the Yankee record, 61, Roger Maris, trying to become, uh, join the club, I guess, that Maris and Sosa and Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds all did. Maris hit his 61st home run, by the way, on the final day of the regular season in 1961. But... Aaron Judge, since homering last Tuesday to get to 60, has now gone homerless in each of his last six games. Yep. Of the seven previous instances of a player hitting 61 home runs in a season, none went without a home run in even three straight games after hitting number 60. Aaron Judge feeling the pressure. You guys think he's feeling the pressure? Yeah, I do. And what is your thoughts on, like, ESPN cutting away from college football to go to the Aaron Judge chase? I don't like it. I hate it. Like, yeah. what's the point of it? It's it's a Yankee record, an American League record. Just, I mean, don't shove it down my face. If I want to watch it, I can watch it on my phone or a tablet or something. Get out of here. I, I agree with that. I also think we're in an era where if somebody cares so much about Aaron Judge hitting number 61 – they can find it on their phone. They can go picture in picture. They can flip back and forth themselves. I don't need the network to do it for me. Does that make sense? Uh, totally. I 100% agree Apparently, with the, um, the broadcaster, Sean McDonough, who does great work, he was calling the Clemson-Wake Forest game, and even he ha- he was a little bit moody about it when they cut away. <laughs> Mad. Here's, of course he was moody about it. Here's, here's number 60, how it sounded. Three infielders on the left side for Judge, and here's the 3-1. Drove deep to left field. There it goes. Number 60. Slide over, babe. You've got some company. That was amazing to hear it like that. 
Now, that was Aaron Judge hitting number 60. Here's Aaron Judge in the last six games. You like that? See what I did there? That's the five and five. It's the happy hour. That's why you come to this show. Did you just give me a courtesy laugh? No, that was funny. That I, was I thought good. that was clever. Sean and me looked at each other and giggled. Did you giggle or did you look at me like, look at that old guy out on his lawn telling dad jokes? I giggled. I, giggled. I, I laughed really hard yesterday when you were playing that Argentina soccer call. The goal. When he was like, goal. Like he sang you know, it under his breath. I thought that, I, that was the hardest I've laughed in the studio. Really? Yeah, For I people, didn't have my mic on, but I was laughing. I very got DM'd hard. about it. That's how good it was. Oh, really? Yeah. You got a DM, and Sean laughed harder than ever. Okay, you're just encouraging him. To <laughs> it. I, I can tell you the excitement in him. Oh, right now I'm excited go about this. Just the way he says it under his breath, and it was like a minute long. I, okay, that one specifically was so funny to me. All right, you like that one? You don't like like the uh, Mace Funa? They're all the, great. They're all great. Yeah, the football thing's hilarious because it's different. And you're but not used you, to it. But you like the Argentina goal? Yes. Okay. So this was World Cup. This is on Telemundo in 2018. And this is what made Sean laugh. Para Mercado. El centro que pasa. I'm telling you, all I can think about is being on a farm and watching an animal give birth. It sounds painful. It sounds like he's crying. <laughs> oh. it's like he's slumped in a corner. Yeah, was he happy no. or sad? I couldn't even tell. It, it's uh, agony. I don't know why. I think about him in like a toga when he's doing the call. No? <laughs> the toga party? He's over in the corner. He's calling the Spanish language game. He's uh -huh. all sweaty. Yeah. You know? Yeah. De definitely sweaty. I can picture <laughs> sweaty going on. Mm -hmm. Perspiration's definitely a factor there. But I think this is actually a better call. The Spanish radio call from that 63-yard field goal where the Panthers beat the Giants. Same year, four months after the uh, goal in the World Cup. Le ha sobrado distancia. Le van a servir. Tiene altura. Tiene profundidad. Va a llegar. Va a llegar. Yeah, that's the one where we dance. Yep. There it is. That one's funny. Just the goal. Yeah. It just cracks me up every time. There it is. All right. Anna, thank you for being here for part of the happy hour. Uh, up next, there's a report out that says that the Pac-12 and the ACC may be coming together on a deal uh, to have their games broadcast. We'll talk about that and more. Plus, Punch and Audio still ahead. Leave it here.
back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I got a call, a call today from a Division One basketball coach, not in the Pac-12 conference, who wanted, who asked me an interesting question. He asked me what I thought the timeline would be for the Pac-12 to add potential universities, and I hadn't really thought a lot about this from a basketball standpoint, but the basketball coach was curious about whether or not the Pac-12 movement to add teams, to expand the Pac-12 conference to maybe, you know, get back to 12 teams uh, with the defections of USC and UCLA and or get to 14 or even get to 16, what would the timeline be for that? Because there are several recruits that sort of hang in the balance. Now, Stephen, you could probably, and Sean, you could probably talk to this, speak to this a little more because I think you guys are more, tuned in to kind of the recruiting calendar and college basketball and all that stuff. But I hadn't – I'm so focused on football right now, I hadn't really thought about how the potential of adding San Diego State or SMU or UNLV or Rice or whoever, Fresno State, Boise State, if you're going to go there, if you're the Pac-12, I hadn't really thought about the basketball implications of that in recruiting. Um I'll give my answer to what I think the timeline is and who I think the candidates are in a second, but guys, can we kick this around a little bit? How big a factor is that with some high school kids out there trying to figure out, you know, where I'm going to go and do I want to be in the Pac-12? And what if you're a recruit who's maybe looking at SMU or looking at San Diego State and you want to play in the Pac-12? How long can you reasonably wait with the recruiting calendar right now before making a decision? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough. You know, San Diego State and UNLV both, they they sometimes get some really good recruits, especially UNLV. They've gotten some four stars in the in the past. Um, the last one I remember was uh, Steven Zimmerman. He was a big-time recruit. He played at the Les Schwab Invitational. Like, he, he didn't make it to the NBA because he wasn't very good, but, you know, he was a big-time recruit. They've gotten some really good people. Um, I, I don't know how long you can wait. I think that they still have some pull, but I do think if they were eventually – to be in the Pac-12, you know, in a couple of years, I think that's really going to help their recruiting, especially for basketball, because both of those schools have such good basketball reputations. I think any of them, like, let's think about all the candidates. SMU, let's just throw out the, the blanket of candidates. SMU, Rice, San Diego State, UNLV, Fresno State, Boise State. If you're a recruit who is a high school, high school junior or high school senior, probably a junior would be more inclined because – this change wouldn't happen until 2024. But if you're in that camp, you are getting recruited maybe by some mid-majors and, you know, you're thinking like you're a fringe Pac-12 guy and all of a sudden, uh, you know, SMU, Rice, or San Diego State are going, hey, we want you in basketball. Can they start selling the possibility that they can be in the Pac-12 before they know they're in the Pac-12 to a potential recruit? I mean, I think you can sell anything, right? Like, I think if they want to, they can sell and say, look, you know, we have a good good chance or a good inside track to get to the Pac-12. And you can lay out everything we've been talking about, whether it's market size or where they're at in geography. So, yeah, I think you can definitely sell that to potential players because it's not as if all these coaches are telling them the truth anyways. 
right? When you're recruiting someone, you're going to say, oh, yeah, you're going to start, you're going to be a big-time player, yada, yada, yada. But a lot of times it doesn't work out. So I do think that they could sell it in a way that could help stu- or help the players go to those schools. I think it's it's an interesting thing I hadn't really considered because, you know, and, and this coach is uh, a bas- you know major college basketball coach who's going, hey, uh, just asking, when do you think the Pac-12 will make a move? Because he's got people he's recruiting who are going, hey, want to know if these schools are going to be in the Pac-12 or not. And I, I think that's interesting. It's an interesting selling point if you're at one of those schools. Here's what I think is going to happen with the timeline. Uh, you know, it, it looks like ESPN is probably the media rights primary player for the Pac-12. I just think it's going to take a little bit of time for the Pac-12 and ESPN to get together on this. I think what we heard in the last two weeks is the Pac-12 talking a lot about, you know, streaming services, Apple, Amazon. I think they're trying to use that as leverage. I don't think the Pac-12 wants Apple or Amazon or another streaming service as their tier one uh, rights holder. I think they want it. Uh, they want to take all the content on the Pac-12 network and put it on one of those streamers. But I think they want the exposure in, in the bright lights of ESPN for most of their games. So um, I think that is going to take – what are we in? We're about to hit end of the week. We're going to hit October this weekend. I think – uh, I'm going to say we're about two to three weeks away from maybe getting that leak where we hear that the Pac-12 has cut a deal with ESPN or has a deal in principle with ESPN or has a deal in principle with one of the streaming services to sell the Pac-12 Network's content. That's the first domino that has to fall. And I was I was kind of targeting before Halloween as that likely date. So I was looking at October 17th, October 24th, something in there. Um, Then I told the coach, hey, that's my timeline for the media rights. And then you have this whole UC Regents, UCLA thing that's looming. uh, And I think the Pac-12 is being strategic. We heard George Klyovkov last week talk about this. I think they're being strategic in trying to figure out what's happening with UCLA before they move on to other candidates. Because if, by some Hail Mary, the Pac-12 does rope UCLA back into the fold, you only now need to add San Diego State and then decide, do you want to get bigger than 12? Because San Diego State would replace USC. I give that about an 8% chance that UCLA ends up back in the Pac-12 conference. I just picked 8 because 10 feels too ambitious. So, uh if they don't get UCLA back in the fold, or if the regents in, in the state of California say, hey, UCLA, you just need a, you're going to subsidize Cal, you're going to pay them a, uh, uh, an annual fee, you're going to pay them part of your media rights package, then it would be incumbent on UCLA to either go, hey, we want to go, or no, we want to stay. So I think UCLA probably goes to the Big Ten. My hunch is that UCLA is going to pay some kind of penalty to Cal is part of their exit. They're going to have to pay $5 million a year or $10 million a year to Cal to help subsidize Cal because that UC system does consider itself a system, and UCLA is breaking from the system, and there is a, there's damage to Cal that is being suffered here. So uh, I think UCLA probably pays a fee to Cal, and now the Pac-10 then pivots to who do we add. I think it's going to be San Diego State. I think it's going to be UNLV. I think it's going to be SMU, and I think it's going to be a big question mark uh, as to whether there is a fourth school and who is it. And I think it's a potential that they add a partner for SMU. 
And I keep coming back to Rice as that partner. Why? Because you get the Houston TV market. So you'd get SMU in Dallas, and you'd get Rice in Houston. You make them travel partners. That way they're not traveling all the time in every sport and football and whatnot. And so they at least have that one in-state kind of game. Now, if you add two more and you try to go, let's go to uh, 16, I think there's a chance the Pac-12 looks around Texas and Louisiana to try to create like a four-team pod there because the alternative is Fresno State and Boise State into the fold. And while I could see Fresno State and Boise State into the fold from a football perspective, and certainly with ESPN valuing the Pacific time zone, I, I hesitate a little bit to add Rice and SMU and make them have to go and do what essentially we're all criticizing UCLA and USC for doing is travel across multiple time zones, play a bunch of games, put a bunch of stress on student-athletes. So I kind of feel like the Pac-12's answer to that might be, hey, if we're going to go to 14 or 16 and we're going to add SMU and or Rice, we're going to have to add some other schools maybe in Louisiana or Texas as part of that equation. Hey, John, I'm curious uh, to your opinion on this. If UCLA were to stay at 8%, it happens. If UCLA stays in the Pac-10, it would be the Pac-11. And then, you, as you say, they go out and get San Diego State to make it 12 again. Then they have to make that choice. What would you prefer? Would you prefer the Pac-12 to stay at 12 or to go out and get more teams? I I think when you do this, my my you know every good decision I ever made in life was a no-brainer. And I keep hesitating with the Pac-12 and going, who are the good options beyond San Diego State? UNLV feels okay. SMU feels okay, plus maybe, because there's some money there and you get Dallas. But it's not perfect. It's not a no-brainer, is it? Mm-mm. And I think that's the problem. So I kind of feel like if they keep UCLA, there's a chance they only add one. And if they only add one, then, you know, you got SMU and Boise State and everybody else kind of sitting around going, and we're never getting in. And uh, the ship moves on. All right. Uh, our, uh, we're going to play some punch and audio coming up after the break. I am glad you're along for the ride. If you have been in a coma, if you've missed everything that's happening in sports, we're going to get you caught up with Dan Lanning, David Shaw, Lincoln Riley, and a whole bunch of others. It's all part of Punch It Audio. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. play some punch it audio in this segment uh the genesis of punch it audio like 16 17 years ago was we wanted a segment where if you literally were coming out of a coma that you would go okay i feel like this is of value to me we basically try to catch you up on everything you missed we give you great sound we also want to make you laugh make you cry make you think let's do it we interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with David Shaw, Stanford coach. He's got an 8 p.m. kickoff. He doesn't believe 8 p.m. kickoffs should be a thing. 
Well, it's 8 p.m. somewhere, David Shaw. Punch it. Just, you know, throwing this out there. And, you know, I think we're kickoff time is 8 o'clock. And I uh, would love to live in a world where, you know, we cap start times at 7 o'clock. I'm making a cap them at 7 o'clock uh, on the weekends and cap it at 6 o'clock, um, you know, if you're playing on a Thursday night. Um, it's just really difficult coming back for college students at three and four o'clock in the morning um, to have an opportunity to, you know, get some rest and then get some schoolwork done. Um, you know, uh, I know it sounds typical coming from Stanford head coach, uh, but I think that's the way it should be. Um, these are student athletes. Um, they have other responsibilities, and for the road team on these eight o'clock start team start. Um, start times. Um, I think it's it's unfair. I think we can play into the windows um, for TV, um, starting no later than seven. But that's just my opinion and throwing it out there. I like his idea of playing into the windows. I think the schools want more control over the kickoff times. I'll throw this out there: if you took all the content that is broadcast on the Pac-12 networks and you sold it to Amazon or Apple, a streaming service. You would no longer really be beholden to playing 7.30 or 8 p.m. kickoffs with that content. So we're talking about 36 games a year that you could play. You could kick it off at 2 p.m. You could kick it off at noon. There's no restriction once you get into that streaming world. I think it's an interesting concept. Uh, and I think I'll go further than David Shaw. I think it's hard on families. It's hard on ticket holders. It's hard on media members. I'm not going to whine myself, but I, I, I look around and I go, okay, how many kids can attend an 8 p.m. kickoff if Oregon or Oregon State are playing one of those games? It's, it's really challenging. Washington State, Utah, Washington. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really challenging. Dan Landing says he's preparing for Stanford, and he's reminding his team not to overlook the Cardinal. Here's the Ducks coach. Punch it. You know, we, we spent time this morning talking about, you know, really the variety of ways that we've won this season and the variety of teams that we've played. And I think you just kind of can continue on where do we need to grow? You know, where do we need to build for us to be a complete team? You know, we've proven we can win in some different settings and some different, um, you know, some different ways. But this is a team that we have to bring our best for. And it's really just like I've said every week, it's about Oregon and our improvement. Um, and we have a lot of respect for this team. You know, this team, uh, you know, shortened our season last year, or at least didn't, you know, our, our, some of the guys in our room, they still have a bad taste in their mouth, you know, from playing these guys before. So uh, that's not far from their minds, and playing to our best is. So that's, that's really what we focus on. When you look at the head-to-head the -head matchups, Stanford's a program that Oregon's had some trouble with. I mean, look, Stanford won an overtime last time out. And in fact... If you look at the last six games between Stanford and Oregon, Stanford's won four of the last six against Oregon. There have, uh, there have been some big football games where both teams are ranked and both teams play well and the, you know get a lot of attention. To, to David Shaw's point, they would not be kicking this game off at 8 p.m. if Stanford were undefeated playing against a one-loss Oregon team. But Oregon better show up to play. Stanford, for whatever reason, circles this game on their calendar every year, gives Oregon trouble every year. And, you know, if you're the Ducks, I think you feel good that this game's at home. You feel good that maybe Stanford's struggling a little bit. But I think Dan Lanning's right. You do not want to overlook Stanford. 
Lincoln Riley talking about Caleb Williams. He didn't play well against Oregon State. 180 passing yards, completed fewer than 50% of his passes. Here's Lincoln Riley talking about his quarterback. Punch it. Just, uh, yeah, missed a couple throws. Just hit, had one of those nights that just wasn't at his best throwing-wise. Um, saw things pretty well. Had a couple of missed decisions, but just, just missed a few throws. Um, that's going to happen. I mean, even the best of throwers, he's, he's you know, He's as gifted as they come there. You're, you're going to have days like that. It's like a pitcher in baseball. Sometimes you don't have your best stuff. I mean, it just it happens. Um, I don't think there was a couple of things fundamentally, but there is every game, even the games. When we complete 90% of our passes, there's always a few things fundamentally you go back and correct. But I, I just think um, get settled back in, kind of like you did at the end of the game. You know, I just kind of did a good job resetting and made some big boy throws when we had to. And that last throw was there ain't there ain't five dudes in the country that make that throw, especially in that moment. So, um, nah, he'll, he'll, he'll be fine. Look, uh, he might be fine, but there was something going on with Caleb Williams on Saturday night in Corvallis. At the end of the first series, I don't know if they showed this on TV, guys, USC went out, had their first offensive series. Williams did not complete a pass in the series. He went to the sideline, and... You don't often see a starting quarterback do this. He took a ball, he took a receiver, and he started throwing behind the bench. And he threw for a while behind the bench. And, you know, I also noticed he was wearing some kind of really super cool T-shirt that had only one sleeve on it. Did you guys check that out? Did you guys see that in the broadcast? Yeah, he had some Nike sleeve on that had, like, trees on it, and it was, like, a weird blue color. didn't match the jersey at all. Yeah, it was a little bit uh, unusual, but I felt like... I kind of wondered, did he get hurt the week earlier? Did he get hurt on the first series? Did he get hurt in warm-ups? Because he just didn't look great for most of the night. And, you know, he completed only 16 passes, 180 yards. Uh, Credit to him, he made the throw at the end, the Jordan Addison touchdown pass. I also think Oregon State's defensive back should have got some hands on Addison as he was running a little wheel route there. But... Keep an eye on Caleb Williams this week against Arizona State. Let's see if he's got his good stuff. Or if, or if Lincoln Riley's right. Maybe it's just one of those nights. Markeith Morris had a funny moment. He was asked by media members about Kevin Durant's trade request. Punch it. Like I said before, you know, Brooklyn was on my was a top team the whole summer. Uh, actually, that was my number one phone call right up and tell what happened with Kevin, but you know, man, just that's the NBA, man. Um, you break up with a girlfriend, you get back with her. Same shit. Same shit. <laughs> you have your differences until you figure it out. Does it work? Yeah, I mean, well, my wife a couple times, you still married. <laughs> <laughs> it works. Uh, you know, sometimes you need space to figure some things out. This works, you know. It is what it is. Now, he's equating a marriage with NBA free agency. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sold. What do you guys think? You think this is over? I, I don't think it's ever over with KD. No, I don't think it's over. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Nets are awesome because Kevin Durant is that good. <laughs> so, like, I, I, is it over? No, but it's the NBA where it's like if you're so talented, it may not matter at the end.
No, I'd put a lot of money on the Nets, as talented as they are, being led by Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons, like three of the biggest divas in the entire league. They are not going to win the title this year, and they're not going to come close to it. Good luck with that. But those three together, if they stay healthy and keep their heads on straight, that is a a ferocious threesome. That is a... And they fit each other very well. I I just I would bet against it going well. You know Me what I mean? Too. Like I just I agree with Sean the, on this the one. The love for basketball between those three is just not there. Besides Durant, but he's got his own package. It's uh, it's it feels. Like, I mean, I'll watch it, but it feels like it's one of those things. Like you know when I I went one time we were, you know everyone's seen the Cirque du Soleil. But one time we went to this performance, we were taking a trip, we were in Hawaii, okay? And we got suckered into going to this kind of pseudo Cirque du Soleil, but it really wasn't the Cirque du Soleil, and it was in Hawaii, and it was like the Walinda family, that the high wire act that everybody like talks about. If you Google them, they're like the best on a high wire, generations of the flying Walindas walking on high wire. They were performing. It was a windy day. And I couldn't take my eyes off the high wire. There was no safety net. They were up there on the wire. It was kind of like, you know, like not a great version of the Cirque du Soleil. It's kind of like a junior varsity performance. But I'll watch the Nets in the same way. Like, great pedigree. It's the Flying Walindas. But it's a windy day in Brooklyn. And you got Durant and you got Simmons. And I, I just, I don't know if they're going to stay on the wire. And I, I, I kind of wonder if we're all going to be watching this. Durant literally told the owner that it's Steve Nash or me. And now he's going to go play for Steve Nash. Like, there's just no way that turns into a championship combo with that background. I think it'll work for about 20 games. And then I think you're going to have some problems. DeAndre Ayton has not spoke to Monty Williams since they were involved in a verbal altercation during their final game last season. He was asked about it. Training camp's underway. How's that going? Punch it. How have you and Monty kind of been able to move? I haven't spoken to Monty. No, I haven't spoken to him at all. Ever since the game. So, not even kind of going to know. I'm here. You got a lot of basketball interference in the background, and you got sneakers and stuff. But basically, he's just saying they haven't talked. They haven't spoken at all, ever, since the end of the season. And Aiden is saying, I, I can show him better than I could tell him. But Monty Williams is saying, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Is this, guys, is this a bigger distraction than what's going on in Brooklyn? Or is it different, or how is it the same? I would say this is bigger because they're not even communicating, right? At least Steve Nash said he came out and him and Kevin Durant have talked. If Monty Williams and DeAndre Ayton aren't talking, I think that's more of a problem because there's absolutely zero trust in that, where at least there's the possibility in Brooklyn where the trust could be built back in Phoenix, I still think they're good enough to make the playoffs. They're still going to be a good team. But, man, if you're not talking to your defensive anchor in the back, like on the back line like that, I think that could be a problem. 
I think it's a little bit different because DeAndre Ayton's the third most important player on the Suns, and so it just doesn't feel like as big of a deal as the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving situation, which it just feels like that is that has a bigger uh, bigger chance to damage the entire team. Do you trade uh, Ayton for Ben Simmons? I think that'd be a good deal, both sides. I think that's a pretty fair deal. Money works. I I, I like Ayton more than Ben Simmons personally. I just I, I always look at you know I I've talked to uh, one longtime league executive. Every time I talk about the trade deadline with him, he says it's your problem for my problem. I, I and I and when I say that, I think about Aiton. I think about Ben Simmons. I think you know does that type of trade work? I'm looking for guys that are making like thirty to thirty five million. First world problems, people. Well, well, that was the Ben Simmons for James Harden trade. Yeah, last season. A- a- Aiton signed that contract, so he can't be traded for a bit. I, I believe oh. it's around the new year. Yeah, until January. Right. So that's why they're not talking. They're waiting until January to have a conversation. That explains it. That's Punch and Audio. It's the best sound from all around. We got one segment left. I want you to hear for it. Leave it here. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Hitter Sampson in the Pulse coming up top of the hour right here on 750 The Game. If you're listening on Fox Sports Eugene, if you're listening on uh, the great uh, uh, you know 620 AM in Klamath Falls, if you're listening uh, on 1490 in Roseburg, I appreciate that you're along for the ride. Also, the podcasters who are out there uh, who are always listening or streaming the show. Uh, love that you're out there in the footprint. Uh, tomorrow we will really pivot and to start to drill down on the Pac-12 games of the week, the news of the day. Uh, I want to finish today's show, though, by talking just a little bit about the uh, viewing experience that we're having on Monday Night Football. Guys, I feel a little bit, I don't want to be an old man on my front lawn, but I feel like ever since we went, to Sunday night football, Thursday night football, what used to be a big deal when I was a kid watching Monday night football, it doesn't feel as special anymore. Is it me or is it the NFL? I think it's the NFL. I, I think you're right on that one. I don't think you're an old man about that take. Uh, you know, the, the special part about the NFL is there's so few games, and so when they spread it out over time like this, it does make it – less special for that one day, right? We all look forward to that Sunday when everyone plays. But when everyone plays on Thursday and Monday, it's it's not as special. I lose my rhythm that I used to have because there was a rhythm. There was sun- Sunday, and then there was, like, leftovers on Monday. Now it's I look up and I go, oh, there's a game tonight. Like, do you guys do that? Do you, do you look up and suddenly go, oh, there's a game on? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I think that one's on you. I uh... <laughs> I usually know the days when the games are on. Maybe it's just because I look forward to them a little more just so I don't have to, you know, hang out with the kids as much. Not that I'm a bad <laughs> there dad. There you go. You love hanging out with your kids. You I do, do, but I like to watch the games, too. I'm getting a lot of hate from people saying I was uh, I was hostile towards Legos earlier in the show. Tomorrow we'll do better. Uh, thank you for listening to the show. Grab a podcast. I appreciate that you're here for this radio show. We have a lot of fun with it. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time. Just a good time.